WWE Hall of Famer from the Legion of Doom, Road Warrior Animal. And Joe Roderick and I are getting ready to watch the In Your House 1997 pay-per-view, Degeneration X. Our match against Brian, what's his name, Brian Armstrong? What did he go Brian by at the James. time? Brian James, sorry. Jesse James. Jesse James. Yes. My Lord, how many different names he got? Jesse James and Billy Gunn. So strap it on, sit back, and get ready for a wild ride. Tomahawk! <laughs> He's one half of the Road Warriors and the Legion of Doom, the most successful tag team in the world of professional wrestling. He's held the AWA, NWA, WCW, and WWF titles. He snacked on danger and dined on death. He's Road Warrior Animal, Joe Laurinaitis, and this is the What A Rush Podcast. Now, here's your host, Joe Roderick. Welcome into episode three of the What A Rush podcast. I am your host, Joe Roderick, alongside the WWE Hall of Famer. He is Joe Laurinaitis, Road Warrior Animal. Joe, what's going on, man? Hey, Joe. How are you? I am doing good. So we are going to do something different here today. You know, uh, basically we are going to borrow an idea that Conrad does, Conrad Thompson and Tony Schiavone do, where they sit through a pay-per-view that Tony was on the call for. And go over that. We're going to do that because I, I noticed this past week that uh, well, a couple days ago was the 20-year anniversary of the In Your House pay-per-view Degeneration X where you and Hawk faced off against the unnamed yet New Age Outlaws. Then yeah. it was just Billy Gunn and the road dog Jesse James. So what, uh, what we invite you guys to do, I mean, yeah, you could listen along with the podcast, but... If you really want to have some fun, go to the WWE Network, and when we say hit play, you hit play on the network. It's from 1997. You go to the pay-per-views, and you go to the Degeneration X pay-per-view, so you hit play when we hit play and watch it along with us, and uh, well, we will uh, we'll see how this one goes. It'll be an exciting card, you yeah. know. Hey, one thing I'd Joe like to do first and foremost yeah. is uh, thank all the fans out there. Mm-hmm. We've been, The viewing audience is growing week by week, which is great. Um, really happy to be along with this network. I yep. think it's going to be a phenomenal thing for all of us. And for all the fans out there, <clears throat> if you want to get a hold of me for any kind of personal appearances and bookings, yeah. you either go to um, my Joseph Michael Laurinaitis Facebook page and private message me, or you know you can hit me on Twitter at rwanimal, or you can go to bookprowrestlers.com slash Steve Stasiak, and uh, it's easy way to get a hold of me for bookings. I love coming to your town. I love doing these podcasts and be able to promote the shows that I have coming up, and uh, it's a great way to communicate with the people, so... um I look forward to coming to everybody's city out there. Yeah, and we will uh, we'll get to all the other uh, ways that you can get in touch with us in just a bit. But like I said, we're borrowing this idea, much like Demolition copied you guys back in the uh, back in the day. That's what we're going to do today, Joe. Well, man, many imitators, no duplicators, Joe. You know the way it is. <laughs> so here we go. Press play in three, two. And one to uh, get the pay-per-view up from December 7th, 1997. 
So, Joe, I'm not sure how much of this you actually got to see back today, but you see the uh, you see the intro coming in. I mean, really, this is the kind of stuff, you know, watching a pay-per-view with a WWE Hall of Famer and knowing everything that kind of went behind it. Was this stuff that you guys were ever you guys ever saw in the back? I mean, did they have screens in the back? What was what was backstage in the WWF like in 1997? Yeah, man, it, you know it was uh, it was pretty crazy. You could tell this is an exciting time in the wrestling business. You know, <clears throat> the only thing that I got a little heated on in the past though, when you see the opening like this, you know, it's pretty much a DX tribute, right? You know what I mean. I mean, and then uh, when you're wrestling a team like Hawk and I and what we've done for the wrestling business, I guess I just expected there to be a little bit more promotion on our end because, um, you know, after all, in the history of the wrestling business, we're touted as being the greatest, the greatest team of all time. Why would you ever promote us? You know, but that goes with testament of how strong our gimmick was. We never got really pushed in any territory and uh, – you know, it, it is what it is. It should be noted too that it, this is just a uh, just a little bit. You know, we'll get into the we'll get into when the uh, when Billy Gunn and Jesse James got the belts <clears throat> off of you, but they're not being touted as the New Age Outlaws yet. That's yeah. they're, they're just in there as singles guys. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. You know, watching this early on. I'll, it's stuff I'll, I'll get to, just the, the difference this was in December of 97 to what you see fast forward a few months from now. But they, you know, they, they weren't, I guess, officially members yet of DX, or they were just on the outlier of DX. So but you I think don't see the, that, Yeah, you don't see them at all. Yeah, they were the, the New Age Outlaws, though, right? They, they weren't yet. Yeah. They, they, were still being, they were still being promoted as Billy Gunn and, Road, uh, and Jesse James. So you'll see that, or the Road Dog uh, in, in some cases. So you'll see that when it, when it comes out. But this pay-per-view took place December 7th, 1997, in Springfield, Massachusetts. You don't really see them going to places like Springfield, Massachusetts, with a pay-per-view these days. They're not they're, very often. Their 2018 schedule just came out uh, last week or two weeks ago, I think, Joe. And they uh, no pay-per-views in St. Louis this year. They actually haven't announced yet when they'll be coming to us. Uh, I guess we should note that we are doing this podcast every week from the uh, St. Louis area until we until we start to take it on the road in a few weeks, which we are going to be doing. Uh, in right the loo, Christmas. We're, we're doing all this communicating yeah. in the loo, and, and uh, you know, I tell you what, these pay per views—they're they, a lot of fun to be a part of, man. I'll tell you that. Look you at know, all the signs. It, well, it's all the signs and all the fan reaction. I mean, you're—you got to remember now, right here, you are just getting into the meat, yeah, meat and potatoes of the internet, right? Yes. Where people are having all these avenues to be able to see and hear what your stars have done, past, present, future. You know, 24-7, mm-hmm. right? And so this is a real exciting time. The dirt sheets are out, and this is also right after the Montreal Screwjob. So if you're watching this, you see a lot of signs that are out there that have things to do with Bret Hart yeah. or Vince screwing somebody over, and you kind of start to see what side people are are on, whether it's Team Bret or, or well, bro, Team Well, bro, hey, DX. listen, I'm telling you, the, the line was definitely drawn in the sand when that happened. Oh, yeah. I mean – the boys who supported Brett and had Brett's back, like Hawk and I, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, back there along with the British Bulldog and, and everybody who's related to the Hart Foundation, you know, and a lot of other guys too. It, it was just, you know, one of those deals that was unfortunate in the wrestling business. I think it put a black eye on the wrestling business for a long time because it was a very unexpected deal. 
in the city of Montreal, especially in Brett's home country. But, you know, hey, man, the stranger things have happened in the wrestling business. But It's you- weird to read about the uh, what happened afterwards, to read about this 20 years ago, just a few weeks after it happened. It's weird to read about it knowing what has happened 20 years later with that and some of the rumors that are out there with that. But you are seeing, I mean, this is – this is right after. I mean, we're, this Survivor Series just happened a few weeks before this, with Sean winning the belt from uh, or from Brett, and uh, you know the the, the screwdriver finish. You even saw we we saw already too Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler on commentary. So Vince is completely off commentary as well, and oh yeah, he's well, full on. He's he's going into that Mr. McMahon character. Well, Vince couldn't go anywhere. He Vince had a black eye. Yeah. I mean, he black sta- backstage, his eye was cut, and he was black and blue, and you know what I mean? So whether Brett – I mean, nobody really knows what happened, you know. Uh, rumor has it that Brett punched him in the eye, which at the time Vince would have deserved it if that screw job was the way it happened. You know what I mean? I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot more about Brian Christopher in this match than Taka Mishinoku, the first match for the new light heavyweight championship. They just finished going through the tournament, so it kind of adds to the roster. You bring in a lot of the light heavyweights, which they mentioned here. They had to be 215 mm-hmm. uh, to be a light heavyweight. Now the cruiserweights down to the uh, the 205. You know, back then, Joe, in that, those days, I think Brian Christopher, I mean, is a heck of a piece of talent, right? And uh, he's a great entertainer, great performer, good wrestler, right? I think back then, I think he was his worst enemy. <laughs> what do you, you mean? Well, man, he had a lot of personal issues, and you know, you know, you got. I don't want to say for sure, but you got. Let's just say a little bit of substance stuff, right? You know what I mean? Like a lot of guys go through in our business. We all know that it's no secret. And if Brian at the time would have been clean. Uh, I think he would have had a lifelong job in the, in the WWE. I mean, he's he's a great piece of talent. You know, he comes from a great long line of lineage, you know, with Jerry DeKing Lawler being his dad. And, uh, you know, and Brian is a good piece of talent. He's very charismatic, you know what I mean? Is You you met his dad about 10 years before this. You met his dad in the 80s in, in Memphis. I met and him. He, I was gonna, well, I was going to say, I mean, right now, at this Brian Christopher in 97, I mean, he looks exactly like his dad I, I, looking at it now it's like you know the it's a well a little bit different physique wise <laughs> <laughs> brian's got a little bit of ethel going on him right now joe so you know he's he's built pretty good no but you know what hey listen jerry the king lawler back in memphis was one of the top guys not only in memphis joe in the country and when hawk and i got asked to go into the memphis area you know on behalf of jerry jarrett and uh jerry the king lawler let me tell you something that was huge. It was, we booked a tag team match against Jerry Lawler and all Austin Idol against Hawk right. and myself. Bro, we tore the house down. So, man, I'm telling you, when you start, Hawk and I were beating the crap out of Jerry, but when Jerry took down that one-sided strap, you know, on that Tarzan singlet that he wore, the place erupted, even with Hawk and I in a ring, man. So, it, it was a great, Memphis was a great territory. We we met Brian, or we ran into Brian Christopher at the, uh, at, at Winston-Salem. Ran into him. He was hanging out at the table. Rikishi, they were doing the too cool thing. Yeah. Um, photos there. And what Brian a great gimmick that was, too, bro. That too cool. <laughs> that was awesome. I loved it. Brian. I loved the dancing. 
Brian Christopher was such a huge fanboy when he saw when was okay so when was the last time you saw Brian Christopher before you saw him in Winston Salem? I, I think it's probably years, man. It's got to be six, maybe seven years. Really? Yeah. And Brian kind of went in. He kind of went out of commission for a long time. You would have thought it was twenty years. The way that he yeah. I mean, he freaked out when he saw you. <laughs> it was. I mean, I I don't think I saw people getting to put the pads on and take pictures that were as excited to see you <laughs> as Brian was. It wasn't just as a friend, yeah. as a former coworker. He really went all fanboy out. In your book, in in your book, you describe the the night in Memphis that you just mentioned, the Jerry Lawler, the Austin Idol match against you and Hawk, and Brian Christopher, when we were talking to him in Winston-Salem, I, I, he, he repeated the story as you told it in the book, almost word for word, <laughs> telling, I mean, exactly how it happened. So it's sitting there, and, you know, I, I've read the book, and it's like, okay, this is, this is how Joe, you know, remembers everything happening. And it's like, Brian went and he repeated everything word for word the way he remembered it happening and was so excited to see you. Yeah, man. You know, listen, it's always great to see a guy like that, especially the guy that's in your business, and he's got that much respect for you, and he's like that. You know, it, even in watching this match right now, we're watching, you see Brian been busted open on his right. lip. But watch this now between he and, and, and Taka. Look at the stuff they're doing, bro, off the top rope. This is now how many years ahead of their time. Yeah. And, you know, and you're not doing all these stupid moves. You're not jumping off the hell in the cell and do, doing stuff where you bust a spleen out or break some ribs. You don't have to do any stupid things. They have their timing, and they do stuff off the top rope. I mean, Brian Christopher, when you watch back, he ran and ran up the ropes on the top rope like a cat and jumped off the cat top rope on the floor on Taka. I mean, it was it, – it looks so – Perfect timing where today it's almost like the guy standing on the top rope waiting. Okay, is the guy going to turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around? And the timing is off. This is a difference in the show, Joe. This is this is why ratings are down now because this kind of stuff right here, the guys were perfect in their timing. The, uh, the, the hell in the cell, you, you mentioned the guys jumping off the hell in the cell. Fast forward about seven months from right now, and that's when mankind goes off the top of the hell in the cell through the, uh, through the table. So okay. we're, not, <laughs> we're not too Bro, far away from that. I remember the first hell in the cell when uh, uh, partially part of the cage was not supposed to break. And uh, with Taker chokeslam mankind. Oh, you're talking that wasn't the, that wasn't the first one. That was yeah, the uh, right. yeah that was the whichever one he yeah. landed on all those thumbtacks. Yep. and his two teeth were through his tongue and his yeah. lip and everything. Were else, you on man. that card? I can go back. I, can, I, was, I, can I was there. Were. I was okay. there. Okay. I, I was I was there. I don't know if I was wrestling that <laughs> night or not, but you know what? At that time when you worked for the company, yeah. everybody had to go to the pay per view in case someone got hurt because they needed another star to be uh, yeah you know to come in and fill in, but. Uh, That'll be the twentieth anniversary is when we'll uh, when we can when we can talk about that coming up in June. We'll go full on with this. Tell me your thoughts on this. I mean, they look exactly alike standing next to each other. The gimmick here, or the I guess the storyline here, is that Jerry Lawler is a big fan of Brian Christopher, but denies that Brian Christopher is his son. He doesn't want to give him any of uh, he, he doesn't want to give a, show any favoritism towards him. So they're pretending that he's not his son. Yeah, well, the, well, the rest of the country already knew. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it's it's funny how they try to do that stuff in business. Listen, it's no different than they're trying to say they have Raw against SmackDown, and it's the same parent company that owns right. both. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
You're not fooling anybody. Yeah, Brian Christopher here was 25 years old. When Taka Mishinoku debuted with the company, he was 23 years old. And you just see him do the, the replay of the moonsault on the outside. There's not a whole lot of room on the outside as much as there is nowadays. Well, now and, you got probably an extra three feet. Right. I mean, And you know what that does? That takes away probably 30, 40 seats, too. Look, look so, at the outside now. You have the yeah. metal rails. You okay. have the rails. You have all yeah. the cameramen down there, too, which you, you don't see that anymore. You don't see yeah, the cameramen all around there. You wouldn't see the there. photographers right. or the cameramen. Like, look at all the cameramen in the shot. Yeah. And well, I think they're well, trying they, to play uh, well, off the whole Japanese thing that these that, guys are from Japan that's to why, see Taka. That's why they're doing this, man. You see, you know, Shin Yamaguchi and you see uh, George Napolitano there and Bob. You Mueller. know these guys. Oh, I know all the photographers, yeah. And Bill Apter. They're all there at ringside. Are they really photographers? Are they taking real pictures oh, these, or are those gimmick are, cameras? you got to understand, back down at this time, you had magazines like Gong Magazine and Baseball Magazine and Tokyo Sports Newspaper. That's who Shin Yamaguchi was one of the – Announcers on the TV now that does with Taka that does a play-by-play for the Japanese version of the shows now. All these guys were photographers back then, and they're all taking pictures right now. And this all goes back to Japan. Listen, you got a top Japanese guy who's one of their top prospects coming out of camp is now in the big time in the WWF at the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's it's a big, huge deal. And he's wrestling Jerry the King Lawler's son. So you're you're over so over in Japan. This is huge for them, and not only that, you know, you you guys were also huge in Japan at the time. So, did you know Taka when he first came in? What was what kind of reaction did Taka possibly have to meeting you and Hawk? Well, when whenever a young Japanese boy meets Hawk and I, it's the ultimate show of respect. You know, you bow, they shake their hands. You know, went over in Japan. The young boys, even if you're a top guy on the card, there will carry your bags if you need them to be carried. I mean, we don't. I mean, it's just respect, especially, you know, no one, no other American really, besides Hulk Hogan, has achieved the status that Hawkeye did in Japan. You yeah. Know? So, uh, it, it, I always say that our country here, in the U.S., and a lot of our workers. I mean, I go around the country to some of these indie places. Damn spoiled indie guys don't even get off their lazy butts, come over and shake my hand which really pisses me off. And half of them don't even know the wrestlers before them that paved the way that gives them the opportunity to be in that indie promotion. You know, they work a full-time job, 9 to 5, and then they go and wrestle the weekends. Well, you know, what about someone like me that wrestle 320 days a year to pave the way for you to have this opportunity? You know, that part kind of ticks a lot of the more experienced and more of the legend guys off a little bit. But the Japanese are not like that, bro. They always are respectful and when I first met Taka, it was all oh, animal-san, you know. Because at this time, you got to understand, Taka hardly spoke any English. Right. I mean, the international language in this match is wrestling. <clears throat> you know, and you, you have, you know, spot, one, two, three, four. And, but you notice the timing in this match, though. Now, look, Brian is setting the heat with Taka. But if you notice all the timing on the outside, there is nobody turning around, facing, looking at the guy jumping off the top rope. There's none of that. It's all great timing, you know, and that's a big thing in Japan, man. The timing's got to be perfect. They don't want anything to look set up. He's, uh, Brian Christopher hits him twice with the Karate Kid crane kick you uh, see there. That move was oh, legal, yeah. by the way. In the uh, in the movie, yeah. uh, so you <laughs> you uh, you see these two as uh, they're going for that. That's you know you, what your point is on that. You, what you're talking about the younger guys, the older guys. It's you, you do see you see some of the guys on the roster still today that 
you know, they, they'll wear, you'll see them wearing shirts of guys of the legend. You'll see them showing the respect. But then you kind of wonder on some of these guys that they wanted to be that professional wrestler and they wanted to, they worked through the ranks to get where they are. And now they've been with the company for a long time, as opposed to some of these guys that were f- maybe failed football players and somebody came up to them and was like, hey, man, you're huge. Why don't you, why don't you try wrestling out? That might not know much of the business, but they're learning. And I could tell you, that we we do get a lot of a lot of indie guys that have had have retweeted from uh, the show have made mention of listening to the show on Twitter at What a Rush Pod is where you could uh, where you could find that so you do see that there are those guys out there that you know they might <clears throat> they might be in their twenties I'm 32 I was 12 when yeah. this pay per view took place so there's guys that are in their twenties that might have seen this in the last five years on the network or might actually be watching it for the first time tonight that they get all of their old stuff or they you know they go back and they see guys like you and hawk that what you guys did 20 years ago well you know everything always comes back around in this business so nothing is really new it's just stuff that they haven't seen for a while they go and they do like this match here they're showing them some good stuff in this match and what to do you don't have to do a lot of those stupid things here's the problem you know, back in our day, we didn't have all this where you can go back and Google or watch the network and, and see what every, all these other guys have right. done. So that's why these guys are listening to the podcast and doing this kind of things, which is phenomenal in today's business. But, you know, <clears throat> you don't have, like like what these guys are doing right here, man, th- this is all inventive stuff. And, and the best thing to do, though, is for a new guy is for the guys to invent their own moves and go back and take tidbits of different people's thing. You know, Joe, sometimes the biggest thing, I know sometimes the guys think it's the greatest form of flattery, but sometimes the biggest insult is when I go to shows or someone sends me a pic of some guy in the audience or some guy working that's got my face paint on and my tights on <laughs> and it's going down the ring and, and calling himself Animal goes down to, ugh, what a rush. To I got to see one of these pics of somebody <clears throat> doing this. I got I, I want to see somebody doing this. We missed the uh, we missed the finish, by the way. Taka hits the Mishinoku driver uh, and gets the one, two, three on Brian Christopher to become the first light heavyweight champion. Yeah, well, that was all, so, that was all <laughs> set up by Brian Christopher missing yep. that leg drop off the yep. top rope, which – Gave Taka that split second to take the one, two, three on Brian. You see Gerald Briscoe, Pat Patterson, and that's uh, is that Tony um, Tony Gurria? Is that his? Uh, that's Tony Gurria in there, yeah. and you got Jimmy Suzuki and uh, Shin Yamaguchi right there in the middle taking pictures. The two Japanese guys, you know, and you got Bob Mueller and you got George Napolitano in there for all the you know. Pro, pro wrestling magazines here in the U.S. So I'm fascinated with the fact that you know the names of all of the photographers. That that truly does fascinate me. Well, bro, I don't think there's probably another team or another entity in wrestling that was photographed more than Hawk and I. And I'm just being honest with you. I'm not being conceited. I'm just saying we took pictures everywhere. We did more photo shoots from where it's in Central Park in New York to the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo or in Kuwait City or – no matter where we went, man, we are always doing photo shoots. But you know what? We agreed to do it. That's why we got to be the level that we got to be at, because we were all over the place. The uh, this was actually given uh, this uh, according to Dave Meltzer, uh, the Wrestling Observer. This was voted by the uh, viewers as the best match of the night. So there, we, I mean, we're we're 20 minutes into this podcast today. And we've already seen the best match that we're going to see. So that's so, bro, uh, what does that say for the next hour and a half, bro? <laughs> Come on, that means we're going to be freaking biting our nails by the time we're done. 
<laughs> well, we, I mean, it's going to be a lot of guys that you uh, you have relationships with. So, yeah, you know, yeah. hey, this is going to go one of two ways. This is either going to suck and we're going <laughs> to run out of stuff to talk about in two hours. And we're going to, uh, hey, you know, man. we'll never do a watch along uh, like this again. Or we're going to get a lot of little stories here and there. And we're going to leave people wanting from wanting more. Well, huh? hey, on <laughs> What a Rush Pod, we don't beat around the bush. We tell it like it is. And the fans love it that way. The uh, they go right into the next match. So we unlike today, where you kind of get those vignettes leading up to every match, you get those the video packages. This one, you just go right to it, where we are going to see Los Bariquas. Uh, this is around the time of gang warfare when yeah, yeah. you had all of the different groups in there. You had the nation, you had Los Bariquas, you had the the disciples of Apocalypse in there. So this is Jesus Castillo Jr. Jose Estrada Jr. and Miguel Perez Jr. are the three members of Los Bariquas who are uh, joined alongside Savio Vega. Uh, I would imagine that you've had you had a lot more interaction with Savio Vega than any of these other three guys. Yes, I did, man. I, I, I may have wrestled some of the other guys though over in Puerto Rico when I wrestled for Carlos Colon. Yeah, you know, because these guys are all Puerto Rican boys. I love Puerto Rico, man. I love the guys. I love the food. Definitely, like, everything that has to do with Puerto Rico, to be quite honest with you. So did you uh, – and w- did we see the entrance for the Disciples of Apocalypse right now. Yeah, here's, uh, a, here's another thing that used to burn Hawk and I's rear yeah. end. These guys come down on Harleys. Hawk and I have done every major pay-per-view on Harleys, riding Harleys. But when we get to the WWE, got to come out the hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go without no Harleys. It's just really – it doesn't make sense to me. Well, how difficult, especially with how close the the fans are, how, I mean, how difficult is it to ride the motorcycle down and maneuver it around the uh, around? I've never I've never once drove a motorcycle, so I can I, I will I will preface it with that. You have how hard is it to move it around the uh, around well, bro, ringside here? You got a freaking thousand pound motorcycle, right? And you're trying to maneuver it, and it, believe me, it's a lot easier to control when it's rolling. And but when you you got to stop, you got to drive it on wrestling mats that mm-hmm. are on the floor, and coming down those ramps. And as soon as you hit that cement, if you hit bare cement, bro, it's like ice, because it'll whip out and it just you you lose your balance with it. You know, it, it, it's it's a pain in the ass, but it's a cool entrance. So, you know, I mean, I burnt my calf on the way to the SummerSlam '92 in Wembley Stadium because Hawk pulled too close to me, and I was too close to the the barrier, and I jump off the wrong side. You know. Yeah, a lot of people have asked about that. Where they, you know what? If as long as this watch along goes well, one of these days we are going to do the '92 SummerSlam, do a watch along for that, and go awesome, through that match bro. because we have that has been, I think, one of the most requested shows that we have. You see, they're sending Savio Vega to the back, so it's the three guys that you don't really know who are going to be ha- uh, asked to carry the uh, carry this. Well, that's eight- mean, all that means is DOA is going to go over. It's, it's <laughs> eight ball and skull for. DOA, uh, the Harris brothers, who you uh, you had many uh, run-ins with, and this is Chains, otherwise known as Brian Lee, otherwise known as the Fake Undertaker. Yeah, from uh, from a few years Brian before Lee that. Was good. I wonder what happened to Brian Lee, man. Crush uh, Crush is actually uh, hurt for this, so he is not uh, he is not at ringside. So the fourth member of uh, the uh, of the WWR of the DOA, I should say. Is not uh, not here. Ronnie and Donnie Harris, man, the twins, great guys. Both of them are great guys. Now, 
we will. Uh, by the way, uh, Brian Lee, he is uh, he is retired and he is uh, he's still alive. It says here that uh, yeah, so he's still uh, still with us. Well, I knew he was still alive. Yeah. I just wonder what he's doing these days, man. I mean, he just like disappeared from WWE. It says here that uh, yeah, nothing nothing really on his uh, Wikipedia page. So if you know what's going on with Brian Lee these days, either uh, tweeted us at the What a Rush Pod, tweeted us, or uh, well, get us in touch with uh, get us in touch with him, get Joe in touch with. So I, you you guys were biker guys, you guys you know you, you had your motorcycles. So I, what was were these would these have been three guys along with Crush that you guys hung out with backstage or had any kind of interactions with? Not really. No, <laughs> no, but these these boys are the Southern boys, man. Listen, it's like the difference between the Hell's Angels and the Grim Reapers. Okay, you know what I mean. It's uh, these guys from the Southern area. Southern area bikers are different than Northern area bikers, and they got different attitudes and different you know different things, different membership quali- qualifications. You know, and it's, I mean, <coughs> listen, they're great guys though. Outside of the ring, right? <coughs> outside we, of the ring, we're all buddies. You know. Do we touch on the Harris brothers? <coughs> That's what I was saying. Outside of the ring. That's what I was. That's what I was talking about. Yeah, was no, outside no, yeah. of the ring. If you hung out with yeah, them, Ronnie and Donnie are great guys. No, but we used to see each other a lot. We'd see them in the gym all the time. Yeah. Or, or travel around the country. I tell you what, though, both of them are like like big old cock strong country boys. I'll tell you that. Do we touch on uh, on the whole the tattoos that the the SS tattoos that they have and any of that? Is that something that you? Well, bro, I, I think mean, they what? probably really are skinheads to be quite right. honest with you. I mean, look at them. They got the SS tattoo and the swastikas and all this other stuff. I mean, that's all. That's them though. But they live. You know, they're Tennessee boys. What do you expect? You know, how does that go over backstage? <clears throat> you got you know you you got a guy like. You know, Ron Simmons backstage, you do have the Nation of Domination with Kama and D'Lo. And yeah. uh, so how does how does this go over backstage when these guys are walking around well, said, with those tattoos? Bro, Ron Simmons and I have had numerous conversations about the uh, all this nonsense with the Black Lives Matter stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Listen, I'm all about everybody in this world being treated fairly and equality and everything else. And I think we're seeing that. Pro sports, 90% of the pro athletes in football are, are black guys, and now you're getting pro, black NFL coaches and everything else. And I think it's phenomenal because there's no reason why they shouldn't be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, it's like Ron says, he goes, what's all the big belly aching about, man? It's, listen, it's, it's all lives matter. Not just black lives matter, not just white lives matter, not just not Chinese or Japanese or whatever. India now, they got Jinder Mahal, Jinder Mahal right? I mean, mm-hmm. all lives matter, man. So... Yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't think any of the boys take it serious. I mean, it's so, just. You know, so you've never witnessed anything outside of a nah, WWE bro, ring where they might have been threatened, or where no. there was maybe even somebody coming up to them <clears throat> that was maybe fans of them because of their bro. tattoos or affiliations. Bro, I remember Hawk and I's first match in the Omni in Atlanta. They we walked down to the ring and they gave Hawk and I official. KKK membership cards. Is this like a business card or like a credit just, card? Here, you're. We want you to be an honorary member of the KKK. And I looked at Hawk, and he looked at me, and I said, well, I guess we're definitely in the South. Because to Hawk and I, it didn't make any difference to us. Right. We could care less, man. You know, some of my best friends in the world have been black guys. I, I really give a shit what color – oops, excuse my language here. What color you are or what, you know. <laughs> it's a podcast, know. and I think that's the first time we've cussed in three yeah, episodes. Look at yeah, that. Man, I could really get going on something. <laughs> I can really start cussing a lot on this Black Lives Matter stuff because it's, it's, well, it's ruined everything in pro football today with everybody kneeling during the national anthem. You, Don't even get me started on that. You see Miguel on the outside <clears throat> from Los Bariquas. He goes down with a, a knee injury. He got kicked in the knee. You see how hairy he is. 
is at some. I mean, first of all, is, is he that the hair, hair, bro? I that is hair. A, I thought he had a jacket on. You, no, that's hair. Hairiest guy you've ever been in the bro, ring bro, with, bro. Though what you should have been done is shaved an L and a B in there for Los Pariquas. <laughs> Hairiest guy you've ever been in a ring with. Well, besides George Animal Steel, probably him. This guy, I mean, it looks like he's wearing a full sweater. He'll come back in the ring later on, and I want you to compare what he, you know, him to George the Animal Steel. Oh, bro, well, there you, you go. You see him right, him right there. there. Yeah. Bro, it looks like he's got a sweater on. Listen, when you're that hairy, bro, get yourself a little freaking $25 razor and trim that crap up or wax it. Why, why wouldn't Vince tell him? To, is it just because he's not important enough? He's just kind of one of Savio Vega's henchmen, if you will. Why? Well, I mean, why wouldn't he have done that? I mean, you well, see, you I don't think, see anybody else with that much hair on them. I think when you're a main eventer, you have a more. I give. Yes, they give you more responsibility to be a guy that's in shape. Mm-hmm. You know, unless your gimmick is totally out there to be a heavy guy like the natural disasters, mm-hmm. you know, earthquake and typhoon. Then you don't have to worry about being the most built guy in the world, right? Right. But anybody else, you got to carry. I mean, you got to be able to carry the company. That's probably why these guys weren't around for a long time because I mean, I don't. You know, that's one of the things that I think with a you know a stable like that, I don't think you're bringing in these three to really. You're not bringing in Jesus, Jose, and Miguel, and hoping, hey, maybe one of these guys is going to, you know, maybe one of these guys will be like the Roman Reigns of the group, or it's like the Shield where all three guys are main eventers, you know, it's not like that, or you're not looking at it as, okay, hey, we have the Anvil and we have Bret Hart, Bret Hart's going to be the big guy that's going to go off, I think this is just, okay, Savio Vega's already made a nice run, he's already had some runs, and we see Savio running down right now, you know, he's been in the Intercontinental title picture in the past. We're just going to give him a stable. We're going to give him guys to protect him. So maybe you don't care. I mean, look at what they're wearing. I mean, they're just wearing jeans and T-shirts. By the way, how it difficult su- is it to wrestle in jeans? That uh, sucks. Totally restriction. But they look like they're pretty loose shoes. And Savi was going on with the Puerto Rican flag, too. The other guy's got shirts like they just woke up in. Mm-hmm. You know? <clears throat> Listen, the beauty about wrestling, everybody's got a job on the show. And... Let's be honest. This match right here, and it's a perfect example, you're only as good as the guy you're in the ring with. Now, when we were in the ring with DOA here, when Hawk and I wrestled them, they were main event because they were in the ring with us. Yeah, and eventually but, they even give them Paul Ellering. Yeah, exactly. But, but that, and they tried to do that for the push. <clears throat> to be quite honest with you, it didn't work. That's why they cut the whole thing. So you got to have a first match, second match, third match, fourth match, fifth match to build up to your main events on the show. That's just the way this business is. Not everybody can be a main event. And the fans don't like everybody to be a main event. And here comes the finish. He was no, he was selling the injury. Oh, it was all fake, Joe. It was all fake, and he comes in. That's a nice Dad little finishing move, though. Puerto Rico's. <laughs> That was a nice little finisher, though, for a big guy to be able to do that flip and drop the leg drop on the back of the head. Bro, to be able to do it and not break somebody's nose, that's awesome. Yeah. But, listen, there's a lot of great performers in Puerto Rico, man. I love going down there. I hope to go down there again someday and do some autograph sessions. I've been talking to Savio about trying to get back down there, man. It's an awesome island. Who Who else would be down there? Well, you'd be Carlos Colon's got his company. I remember Hawk and I wrestled Carlos Colon and Abdullah. We saw Carlito. Carlito was at uh, was yeah. at Wrestlecade. 
Yeah, Carlito's dad run, runs the whole thing. You mm -hmm. know, you had a guy at one time, Victor Trevica and uh, Carlos Colon. They did a lot of running of, of shows down there. Unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, after the big storm and everything, man, Puerto Rico doesn't have a lot of a lot of money because all the money's right now is going into fixing up everything down there in the country. But I remember right after the hurricane, I I called Savio and said, "Hey, man, is everybody okay in your family over in Puerto Rico?" He said, "Yes." So, you know, I don't know how many guys called him, but I for sure did. Yeah. It's uh, you know what? That's a trip. You get down, you get sent down to Puerto Rico. I'm gonna piggyback you a few on uh, on that one, bro. That, it's awesome uh, man. when stay that happens. At, stay at that nice big embassy suites about two blocks off the ocean. Go there on the ocean, man. You sit in a little barista, a little cafe right on the ocean there, man, on the beach. Final thoughts. Uh, we'll get into the DOA. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll touch on them later, especially with Paul Ellering being uh, being given uh, to them to manage this at a certain point. This is Butterbean. <laughs> this is uh, this is actually before Butterbean faces Bart Gunn at WrestleMania 14. So this is before the Brawl for All, which I know we'll get into because that had Hawk first draws. Yeah. In it in the first round, so I know that's going to be something to you. But this is Butterbean. The night after he uh, he uh, fought on the Oscar De La Hoya card, so he fights on Saturday, and then on Sunday he comes in and he is uh, he's facing Mark Merrow in a strongman competition, or a mm -hmm. tough man competition, I should say. And there's uh, there's Sable as well. So we'll get in the. I would imagine you met Butterbean when he was backstage. Yeah. Tell me what that's like because outside of WrestleMania 14, I can't imagine we ever talk about Butterbean again. No, man. I, I, listen, that whole thing they did back there with the guys with uh, <clears throat> the fighting with Bart Gunn and everybody, I thought that was the biggest travesty in our business, to be quite honest with you. How? What was it leading into it? How did they find guys for it? What they, do you? They just asked guys on who wanted to do it. Why didn't you? And everything else. Why well, wasn't asked to do it? And Hawk did it. Did it? I mean, I would have done. Why'd it. they ask Hawk and Draws and not you then? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, it's not like I refuse to do it or nothing. I just, you know, <clears throat> they had certain guys. They said they were going to do it. They wanted to do it. Listen, a lot of times when they do shit like this, it's uh, it's kind of like the ribbon on the square type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Guys that are known to be tough guys back there, they go and they do it. Hey, why didn't you ask Haku to do it? Right. Or Barbarian. Or they Warlord. would have been over in WCW at the time, right? They would have been the faces of fear over there, Ming and the Barbarian. Yeah, maybe maybe yeah. they were, but, but still, you know, you, 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 but I had Warlord probably was still there with the Whataburger sign he was holding up, or the British Bulldog or anything else. It's just certain guys they put in there because, you know, that, you know it's, it's like I'm going to try to – we're going to really see who's tough type of deal, and it's not really a fair thing. You this know is – Listen, Bart Gunn did phenomenal. I love Bart. Bart's great. This is when they gave uh, Mark Merrow, he was not the wild man anymore. He cut the hair. Uh, at one point, Jim Ross refers to him as the wild man during the match, but immediately corrects himself. He's now marvelous Mark Merrow. He's a boxing character, and he's a, really, a, just, his gimmick right now is he's treating Sable like crap. Oh. He's, he's, you know, he's being kind of a, a dick to Sable. How do you right treat here. the hottest girl in the wrestling company like crap? Is that okay? What's your, you, your Mount Rushmore? Give me your top four female uh, valets, wrestlers of all time. Is Sable on that top four? Heck yeah. You got Sable, Kimberly. Uh, who else? Um, who's the girl I was just with out in Boston? Um, Maria? 
Okay. No, no, no. You were with. Um, oh my gosh, it's gonna it's gonna kill me to not know this. Michelle. Michelle. Um, Michelle was awesome. I never really got to talk to her very much in WWE. She was awesome. You know, and you know, and then you had you know, Stacey Keebler was great, and you know, Melina was great. I mean, listen, there's a lot of great people, a lot of great girls at that time. You know, you know what I mean. But even Mark Merrill. Mark Merrill is a hell of a guy. You know, he does. Candice uh, Michelle. Candice Michelle. Michelle. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, Mark Merrill is great. Mark Merrill does motivational speaking now. Right. I was going to say, the, yeah, the, the career great. paths of these two, good Sable guy. now married to Brock Lesnar, yeah. and Mark Merrill, complete, I mean, he, he is now motivational speaker and has created an entirely different career for himself away from wrestling. But I think what they did, man, they both did, even through the divorce, they treated it good. They really take care of their daughter together. And, uh, man, it's, they're, they're both great people. So yeah, he's he's the boxing character now, which is why you are seeing him in a in a feud with uh, with Butterbean. Yeah, so which they is can't not even call realistic. It, they can't the call it a boxing <laughs> match because boxing is regulated and theoretically can can't be worked. So it can't be you can't say that it's a fake boxing match. That's that's not a thing. That can't be the case. So and they also couldn't call it a boxing exhibition because Butterbean had a fight, if you could call it that, the night before in Atlantic City. I'm reading from Dave Meltzer's notes on the Oscar De La Hoya card. Sable debuted as a celebrity ring girl to hold up Butterbean's prestigious IBF World Super Heavyweight Champion four-round championship. So athletic commissions won't allow anyone to take two boxing matches, even if one is an exhibition, that close together. Listen, so, they were to let Sable do whatever she wanted yeah. to. Well, I'm talking to this, is so that's why they had to call now, it I a know, tough but, man but contest. At that time, Sable was already in Playboy and stuff, so she would have, yeah. I mean, that w- that gave the whole thing some different credibility right. and a different set of fans, you know. So this, uh, Meltzer goes on to write, the problem with this, by not being under boxing regulations, but instead tough man regulations, they had to wear 18-ounce gloves rather than 12-ounce gloves. So they're wearing heavier gloves than what they're used to wearing. You see Butterbean has a 90-pound weight advantage on Mark Merrow. 90 pounds getting a punch thrown at you, the difference between that. What's, what's that going to feel like? Well, it's a ton of bricks. <laughs> you might as well throw a motorcycle at somebody. And how, just those six ounces, just those six ounces having those on your hand – 18-ounce gloves, how I mean, how yeah, difficult bro. is that just walking around, essentially, you know, carrying around almost three pounds extra on your hands? Yeah, you carry around a five-pound weight all day long. You know what it feels like. And imagine, too, at the time, look at that, one six one, one six foot. Are you kidding me? Look at Mark Rarell is at least three inches taller than Butterbean right now. Let, you know, Which usually goes the other way around. I mean, you're usually yeah. you're over-exaggerating the height of a wrestler where boxers, I mean, that is really kind of precise. That's going to be Bro, real. To put it all in perspective, imagine now, now imagine you're seeing these two, and now imagine Brock Lesnar. Yeah. 290 pounds that you're having a guy that's benching 500 pounds smoking you or something like Hawk and I hit you. I mean, myself, my best bench was around 635 Bro, if I'm hitting you, you're feeling it. Right. You know? So that's going to be a four-round match here between these two. Uh, that's uh, just two minutes each. How much of this, uh, how much planning do you think goes into this? Or how much of this is, you know, Mark saying, okay, you know, hit me with your best shot. Or is Butterbean telling Mark Merrow, try to hit me. Try to see what you, you know, try to knock me out. Well, how much I'm of this is sure, a work? I'm sure they have what round he's going to go out in. You know what I mean? 
and they got to make it as realistic as they can. Listen, <clears throat> I'll never forget one time the hands of stone, Ronnie Garvin and Larry Zabisco. I think I told you the story. I'm down in Knoxville, Tennessee, and guess who the guest referee was? Ernie Shavers, who fought Muhammad Ali, who fought every, every top heavyweight at the time. See, now this is not boxing here. You can't knock a guy out of the ring in boxing. It's a tough man. Well, it's a tough man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, like I said, this is a tough man before UFC. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is pre-UFC days. So, Are you a UFC guy? I love UFC. Okay. We'll get I, into that more when, uh, I, when Ken, the Ken Shamrock match comes around, but I, I, I don't think I've ever actually asked that. Yeah. But, you know, you got to understand, back here during this day, okay, back to the Hands of Stone match, Ernie Shaver sat there in the locker room with us and told Hawk and I and Ronnie Garber to Larry Zabisco and Paul Ellering, we said, Ernie, who, uh, who had a good punch in the, your boxing? He goes, Joe Lewis can make it look like it knock you out and not even touch you. When he said that, our jaws dropped. We're going, what? Don't tell me the last, the holy grail, boxing is the work. And he never came around and said it was the work. But when he said that Joe Lewis could throw a jab and make it look like you'd blast you and, and not even touch you, that pretty much tells you the story. And when you watch a lot of jabs, a lot of fights, I mean, in Ali's fights, a lot of that was, you know, was projected. You know, Ali would throw those jabs so fast and furious that he wouldn't even touch guys and knock guys out like the Sonny Liston fight, right? Yeah. You know, you got you got to kind of wonder, man, when big money's involved, you got big money people like the mafia and everything else betting <laughs> on these things. You got to just wonder what's happening. You see all hell break loose at the end of the uh, at the end of the first round. Butterbean looks to be blown up, and Meltzer even puts in the notes here that you see a lot of stalling by Mark Merrow because he's not trying to show up Butterbean. He's not trying to show up the professional boxer when he's the pro wrestler because Mark Merrow is obviously in a lot better shape than Butterbean, and Butterbean just had a match or a fight the night before and had to travel from uh, up from that. So he had to travel from Atlantic City up to Springfield, Massachusetts after fighting on the Delahoya card the night before. So who knows oh, what like, time he even that, got in. That's like a 20-minute flight. Is, all, is that uh, just a I – mean, but still, you're yeah, still but, having to but, travel. Yeah, but here's, here's my point, though. If this wanted to be real – Butter be the knock Merrill out in ten seconds, just with one hit. You don't think Merrill's fast enough to, to no, dance around bro, from that? You can run, but you can't hide. Okay. I mean, look. I mean, that punch didn't even hit, hit Merrill right there. He took a bump outside the ring. What was the reason you think for bringing Mark Merrill in? You see him hit a uh, run from behind, and now you just see all all bets are off. Mark Merrill's choking him with some of that ring tape that they put on the uh, on yeah. the trunks and hit him from behind and. It's uh, yeah, it's just gone all out into this is basically a wrestling match with boxing gloves on. That's exactly what it is, man. And Butterbean's doing a good job. Hey, listen, man, I don't know what he got paid, but Butterbean had to get paid a pretty good nut to sit there and let Mark Merrill be doing this to him right now. What would you? I, I mean, what what are you getting paid around this time? What do you think he's getting paid around this time? Well, I'm not going to elaborate what we were getting paid because we are so grossly underpaid for what we drew in this business, but. Uh, I'll bet he probably he may have got like a five or ten grand payoff for this. Why don't you tell us? Why don't you talk about your pay at all? Yeah, it's nobody's business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 and now I'm gonna push. And then you see Mar- Butterbean with his back to Mark Merrill, and Merrill's still throwing punches in a in a boxing match. There's no way the referee allows allows punches to the back or the back of the head. No, no, no. 
So what is? Yeah, but I will give Mark Merrill credit, bro. He did a lot of boxing at this time. Mm-hmm. He looks phenomenal. He's in great shape. Uh, and Mark always kept himself in great shape, though. What do you uh, you uh, you saw him back in WCW when he was Johnny B. Bad? Yep. You saw him in WWF as the Wild Man, and then you saw him here with this boxing gimmick. When do you think Mark Merrill was at his uh, was at his best? You know, bro. I think Mark Merrill could have been a main eventer. From this point on in wrestling, and end with Johnny be bad. They put belts on him. They put. Belts. They, they put the. They was it the U.S. or the TV title but they bro, put on him in WCW? Here, they put the, the Intercontinental the title problem, on him the here. The problem with WCW though, they put a belt on you. They don't give you any push to help you carry that title. You gotta. You gotta have the. Listen, why do you think Hogan and Savage and the Warrior and those guys stayed such a household name in people's houses because they put them on underwear they put them on pillowcases they put them on lunch boxes they put them on cups everything in the world right when you give a guy a belt and you don't give them the same push they're only going to get so popular one of the few entities in wrestling that ever kept that kind of popularity was hawk and i without that push because in all the commercials you never see hawk and i in a commercial promoting any wwf superstars or any kind of stuff or merchandise or anything like that no it's always it's always the same guys either sean or ultimate warrior or hogan it was the same three now today you see it all you see is cena yeah. you, you know what i mean pretty much on everything on promotional stuff like that you know once in a while you see aj styles or maybe new day but you know, very you very seldom see more than just than Cena. Well, Cena's ever yeah, and he you know he has the movie coming out uh, yeah. too. He's already he has already had a small part in a movie that was out last month. He's coming out. He's the voice of the the bull and Ferdinand. Which is awesome, by the way. Coming I, out saw, I saw the commercials on that. It's awesome. You, you're gonna have to take your grandkid to go see that. Oh, you know I, that, I, right? Well, and listen, man. I already the, know my son's already been asking about it too. The, so the, the stuff with Cena yeah. is rightfully so. He deserves that kind of push and to be the mainstay. And when you're pushing merchandise. I'm just saying when you have, you know, 10 top baby faces on there, they all should get some kind of a push to sell merchandise because mm-hmm. in my eyes and in all the other wrestlers that are in the wrestle in the world's eyes, and this is why there are some lawsuits about this right now, they all contribute in a way when you get the same equal push. You know what I mean? You give them a push, more people buy stuff, and they all make the company makes more money. So I don't know why the company wouldn't do that. And you know, you, you mentioned that one guy that does stand out that never got a, uh, I guess, a big push that way or never got the belt but was always getting pushed uh, would have been the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Oh, uh, he, yeah, Ted was great. Yeah, he, he was on – you know, they had the, the wrestling buddies, the pillow pals with, uh, with Ted DiBiase on it. He was on all the merchandise back in the, uh, back in the ni- early 90s Everybody's as well. Everybody's got a price, but, bro. But, yeah, I mean, that, just, that gimmick of his was just so – Freaking over. Well, the gimmick, and you had the voice, and then you had the, the black valet named Virgil, mm-hmm. which was a rip on Dusty Rhodes at the time. That's why they named him Virgil. So you think you think that was – so you're saying oh, that's a rip. You're saying that they named – Okay. Listen, at the time he, they made Virgil, the NWA was selling out everywhere in the country. WWF was selling out everywhere in the country. And then, you know, Dusty didn't go to Vince, and we didn't go to Vince, so let's rip on Dusty, and we're going to call this black guy Virgil. You know what I mean? Well, of all the names you could have picked, why'd you call him Virgil? Speaking of uh, Virgil, we'll be uh, we'll be seeing Dustin here in uh, just a bit. And I, what I like about this is when we started recording this today, you said that you know this, these are things you haven't gone back and watched, or you haven't watched them in years. So a lot of this is I, I, if 
right now. Like brand new again. Right now, yeah, we're we're an hour into this. We're about an hour into this right now, and it's almost like you are seeing this for uh, it, you're seeing this again when you haven't seen it in so long. So is this is this jogging your memory? Are you remembering this now? Is it coming back to you? What what is that like? Yeah, man. You listen. Whatever you're. In someone in a Hawk and I's position, you're not going to remember every pay-per-view you've been on. You're not going to remember every main event, right? So you got you got to have things that jog your memory because they all have a different, you know, everything's got a different match and a different thing that jogs your memory and a, and a different highlight of that match, you know. But I remember this right here, man. I remember I remember Mark Merrill training like crazy. I remember when he cut his hair. I'm, you know, did it I, back in this day? Do you, does he have to ask permission to cut his hair? How does that? How does that yeah, go? Because there wasn't a he didn't have a hair match, did he? No, no. The office, I'll tell you. I mean, right. The office told Hawk and I we were in flat tops for a while. Yeah. You know, and I had that big long ponytail. Oh, there. we're gonna talk about that. Trust uh, me, I I saw that, and that's we, we got to talk I, about I that. I hated that, bro. I hated that. <laughs> the LOD two thousand crap. <laughs> We're about to see the fourth round. Here comes the uh, the end of this. About ten seconds into it, we'll see. Uh, we'll see Butterbean just knocks <laughs> knocks Marrow down and uh, and out, and then Mark Marrow hits him with a low blow to uh, to to uh, end the match. Well, bro, let me tell you that Mark Marrow just got hit with two good rights by Butterbean. Now, if that was real, Mark Marrow would still be laying there in Springfield. He uh the the stool that he just hit Butterbean with he took the stool from his corner and you could tell that it was gimmicked to uh to to break he didn't hit him the right way with it the first time that couldn't have felt good on Butterbean getting hit in the back with a stool before Merrill realized how to hit him with it so it would break yeah I'm sure bro it had to be a gimmick stool and look look how fast now I don't know if you ever been around boxing matches it takes forever to cut those gloves off and Butterbean just got his gloves off in two seconds. <laughs> and threw him at Merrill, you know. So, <clears throat> hey, listen, this was like, you know, you got to understand, man, this is the beginning of the gimmick matches, per se, in the WWF. Yeah, when you start bringing people in from the outside, and uh, they, they fixed it up. The uh, They give, uh, Dave Meltzer gives this match, he he calls it a dud. It gives it zero, a zero-star rating, calls it a dud of a, uh, of a match. Oh, kind of. Meant really meant nothing on the card, you know. Was so, it entertaining though? You think? I sure, mean, you're man. watching it, it again. Listen, listen, you got a a guy that's legitimately won a tough man contest that has won belts now, and which is a great testament to Butterbean by all means, you know. Your match is next on the card, but we're about to get a uh, a surprise, a little bit of a surprise before that. We'll go over all of the uh, everything that led up to that uh, as well when we uh when we come to that match but they show the replay of this and we're about to uh we're about to be welcomed here <clears throat> by Dustin Rhodes or as he's being known uh, as he's being called here the artist formerly known as Gold Dust so he uh, he's gotten rid of the gold paint on his face and the gold jumpsuit that he's wearing and he's also being uh, being brought down to the ring by Luna Vachon. First time that you've uh, you've met Luna. Oh, look at, look at him there! I love it. Luna. Do was, you like? Okay. Do you like this? Luna was a different cat. No, I don't like. Listen, you're in a dark time in our business, man. I don't like anything that has anything to do with any kind of dog collar thing or S and M type of look. 
you have children watching. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you have to be respectful of that. Like, look, what's this little glitter thing that Goldust has got over top of his private area there? You know what I mean? Right. And got F.U. on his cheek. Why would you put F.U. on your cheek? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what F.U. means. Yeah, he's wearing, it looks like, pantyhose, and he's just dressed up all in pink with a sequence over his, uh, uh, over his junk. People tell if he was gay or not <clears throat> anyway. He knew he was Goldust. So... He he's in this character now where he got away from the gold dust gimmick, but it looks like he's even gone above and beyond something even even crazier with this. I mean, you you knew Dustin as a kid, right? I knew Dustin back when he and Gene Anderson's kid, you know, Gene and Ollie Anderson were tag team champions. When Gene Anderson's kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, when they were both young punks before they even went, when they were in high school, then they, I knew when they went through wrestling camp. As a matter of fact, I had. Dustin's first match on TV in the NWA. Really? Yeah. Hawk and I, it was funny. Hawk and I didn't bump for Sting or Lex Luger. When Dustin came in and gave Hawk and I a drop kick, we both took a bump for him <laughs> because it was Dusty's boy. It was funny, bro. It was great. What do you think? Uh, what do you, you, know, you got to know Dusty so well over the years. What do you think he is thinking of this gimmick? Because right now he's over in WCW. Well. I don't think Dusty really thinks any of it. I mean, even his own gimmick, you know, Dusty's gimmick was kind of flirting the line of being straight or gay. You know what I mean? So it, I, I don't think he thought anything of it. You know, listen, it's performance and performance art. Uh, the main nuthead in this thing was Luna. And I wonder why Luna is gold and white with her face paint and not along the same lines with Dustin. It's almost like she's wearing his old uh, his old face paint she's here. Like, it's, what, it's like she's gold Dustin. He got reincarnated into the the pinky one. So you knew you, you knew Luna going in. I mean, you knew Luna through her through her dad, or did you know her through? Did you meet her first? Who did no, you? No, I knew her. I knew her three months through the wrestling business okay. and through David. You know, mm-hmm. Gangrel. Her uh, ex-husband, you know, I knew her a lot through then. And then I knew her, uh, I've seen her a few times in Japan with Sherry Martell and actually bailed him out of a fight in Tokyo down at the uh, Rapongi, one of the big party areas down there. They were fighting each other or they were going to fight uh, somebody else? I turned the corner and they were in a fight with about three or four Marines. You know, which so Sherry and Luna were going to fight three male Marines. Oh, yeah, you can hear Sherry and Luna yelling from about two blocks away. Who would have won that fight? The girls. <laughs> But I didn't give a chance to when Ellering and I were walking one time, and when we saw that, we uh, I ran in there, and I, I think I knocked two of them down and out, and the other one ran. So they get Luna drags uh, Gold Dust off with the uh, by the by the dog collar, and coming up next, we we see you and Hawk. You're all dressed up. You got the pads on, and a young Michael Cole is backstage yes. doing the uh, doing the interview. With the with the two of you, do you remember as you watch this? Do you remember anything that happened in this uh, in this promo as they show just how Billy Gunn and Road Dog won the belts, which will uh, which we'll also get into? Do you remember anything about this promo as you're watching as you're about to watch? No, no, I remember the shot. I remember what to go backstage and told Brian. I said, "You freaking hit me that hard with the chair again. I'm gonna freaking kill you." You know, I mean. Listen, there's things to do in this wrestling business, and sometimes you do it. Accidents happen, and so it was no big deal afterwards. It, it could it have been a case of uh, uh, could it have been a case of just you know he knew what was about to happen, the hype of the moment, and just leading yeah, up bro, to it. Yeah, bro, listen, Brian's great. You know, I've known Brad Armstrong, I've known the Armstrong family for a long time. Actually, the James family, 
and Brian James is great. Road Dog was probably one of the most underused guys in the wrestling business. He's one of the greatest promos ever of all time, you know, for a single guy. You know, he started off with, oh, you didn't know? I mean, he was great. That was a phenomenal. That was part of helping DX get over mm-hmm. was, his, was his intro. Hawk compares. Uh, Hawk is talking about for about thirty seconds here. Talks about picking his nose. You got a booger you can't get out. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to laugh at that one. <laughs> so he compares it to that. And, <laughs> but look at he's doing though. That's something that everybody does. The booger comes out, sticks to your finger, and you roll it in your fingers before you can flick it off. Tell me now, Joe. You've done it yourself. Yeah. I know I've done it. Who out there in freaking listen to the podcast has not flicked a booger off their finger? And that's. The way DXR, you got a couple of gnats. You want to pick them and flick them. They uh, so you're about to face Billy Gunn and uh, the, uh, Jesse James yeah. in this match. They come out to the oh you didn't know, and it's not over yet. Nobody in the crowd repeats it. I, I, I'm wondering if this is the first time that it was done, or if they were doing this on Raw ahead of time. But there is absolutely zero reaction to this. Where now? If you get Road Dog, if you get Brian James in the middle of a ring, you could put him on Raw this next Monday with a microphone in his hand or just even backstage. If he, if you hear that opening line and you hear, oh, you didn't know, you're going to have about 20,000 people in attendance repeating it word for word right alongside him. But here, oh, yeah. crickets. Yeah, well, that's the way everything yeah. is in the beginning, you know, until something gets over. But, you know, I'll tell you what's going to help those guys immediately is getting in the ring with Hawk and I. This is uh, by far the best entrance so far of the uh, the night. They got the flashing lights going. The two of you are in the ring uh, going back and forth, doing your thing in the, uh, in the ring, waiting for the, uh, waiting for the champs, to, uh, champs to come out. I do got to say uh, November 24th, Fayetteville, North Carolina, is when you guys lost the belts to them. They uh, – they beat you, and they showed there that you were hit in the back with the chair. Billy Gunn pinned, uh, uh, and then Billy Gunn pinned you, and they sprinted out of the arena into a uh, into a car to get the heck out of there. Well, bro, I should have kicked out of that one, two, three, two, because referee took so much time getting back in the count. <laughs> I was rolled up forever. It should be noted that the night you guys lost the belt, November 24th, Nitro was on the exact same time. And this kind of shows you where Nitro was in the Monday Night Wars at the time. So a match between you guys, Hawk and Animal, for the tag titles against this new group of Billy Gunn and Jesse James, lost in the ratings to WCW 3.5 to 2.7 at the time. The match you guys lost to, ironically, was Brad Armstrong in a match against Dean Malenko. <laughs> so that match, that, that just shows you where the business was at yeah, the time. Hey, it has nothing listen. to do with you guys, but it shows where the business was at the time. And it's kind of, you know, you see where that boom is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of can see when, you know, this is when you guys are in that consecutive losing streak each and every week, which when you look at the roster you guys had, it's, it was crazy. Yeah, well, bro, you listen, the fans all knew that that losing streak was a freaking slap on the hands for something that Hawk was doing. I mean, I'm going to be quite honest. No, no, I'm talking about the losing streak of ratings. I'm talking about oh, the ratings oh, losing I'm talking, streak. I'm talking about our losing streak. No, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm no. talking about the ratings losing streak. Yeah. <clears throat> listen, us in the companies, <clears throat> we never saw it as a losing streak. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, at the time, you got to look, even a Brad Armstrong match – 
was probably Nitro had all the guns. You're talking back then, didn't they have the... Uh, oh, the NWO would have been running wild at this NWO time. The NWO was yeah. hot as heck back then, and, you know, the whole show revolved around that, and Bill Goldberg was as hot as he ever could be back mm-hmm. then. So, I, heck, if I was a fan, I would have watched that too. Yeah, so that, uh, leading up to this as well, you guys faced him a few other times. On November 21st in Richmond, Virginia, you guys defended the titles against them. November 22nd in Greensboro, North Carolina, you successfully defended the titles against them. All of that leading up to the Monday night, uh, the Monday night Raw, or the Raw is War and shotgun tapings on November 24th when you guys lost the belts to them. And then actually the night before, this happened in Providence, Rhode Island. You guys teamed up with Dude Love to beat Farouk, uh, Kama Mustafa, and Rocky Maivia. So you guys were in the ring against The Rock the night before this, while Billy Gunn and Jesse James were defending their titles against the Headbangers. Dang. So that was uh, so they they stall for a while. They try to get uh, try to see how long it was before they can go to the ring. They say Billy Gunn is sick, which Dave Meltzer points out. He very might well have been sick because at the time, it takes him about six minutes to get into the match. <clears throat> you and Jesse James, the road dog, come into the match to start it off. The bell has rang, but you don't care. You hit him in the back with the belt anyway, and don't get yourself DQ'd. <laughs> now, did the <laughs> bell ring too early, or did you make a mistake by taking the belt off and hitting him? Uh, that wasn't according to plan. What what happened? If you can remember, nah, bro, listen. You just got to go. What you got to do with a road, what a road warrior is going to do. And that was just my instinct. <laughs> was you know, grab that belt and hit him with it. So this match, it, it was there. The bell didn't even ring yet, so I could. No, do the bell had rung. The oh, bell had it? yeah. Well, the bell had rung before you had uh, before you had done that. That's why I was asking if it was I'm a mistake sure, sure. on your part or a no. mistake on the bell ringer's part to ring the bell before you used the belt. No, nah, bro, listen. No matter what we did in the ring, wasn't a mistake. <laughs> we could do no wrong back then, especially when you're doing a rebuttal type match like this. To do guys that, that hose you mm-hmm. to win the belts, I mean, pretty much anything goes. But it's funny here, though, looking at Billy now, bro. When you look at Billy Gunn now compared to then, it's like two different people. Billy Gunn's in phenomenal shape right now. Oh, he is. He absolutely is. And this isn't this isn't me saying this. This is not me saying this. This is other former wrestlers at North Carolina when we were there who said this to him, yeah. who made re- who had reference that maybe maybe it's because he's not being tested these days. Bro, he's in the best <laughs> shape he's ever been in. It's no secret, you know, it's not going to come from eating a dozen eggs a day. <laughs> <laughs> he he might have the foot on the gas a little bit, is what the uh, what the other guys were saying uh, to him. He definitely get a speeding ticket. <laughs> so you see uh you know this is after this is after jesse james has the failed roadie gimmick but that does lead into him being called the road dog and this is also after billy gunn has the failed run or they break up the the smoking guns they break up him and bart and they try to put billy gunn in a te- uh as a singles competitor with the honky tonk man as his manager as rockabilly and they decide to just kind of go as a tag team here. No real rhyme or reason for it. Just two guys looking for something to do. Let's go team up yeah. and see how that goes. Well, this worked out good together, man. It's all in the look. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, you got a good performer and a good talker on the mic like Brian. And then a guy that looks the part like Billy. 
with the bandanas and the good stuff they were wearing. I mean, I like that. The rockabilly thing was never going to work anyway. I could have told him that. It's, saved, it's, saved the money. It's amazing to see his hair, uh, uh, Jesse James's hair now, knowing just how long it yeah. gets with the dreads over a few years. Oh, bro, let me tell you. He's got, like, the freaking Shirley Temple curly cues. What's his hair? What's the hair look like? I, don't, I can't remember. I, I know I've seen him backstage in some things, but I haven't seen how what it's, the hair. He's got a short buzz cut okay. now, yeah, man. But, but but Brad was the same way. Brad had that long wavy hair. Brad Armstrong, uh, Scotty or Stevie, the other two brothers. I don't even know what their hair was like. Their heads were always shaved. So hey, Bob Bob Armstrong had the curly hair too. What is it? To, what are you guys thinking, or what is the conversation like prior to this match? Going in with these guys, you've worked events with them. You lost the titles to them. So it's this isn't the first time you guys have been in the ring. But you know that you're dealing with younger guys and, and somebody such as Jesse James, Brian James, that you know his family and you've worked with his family many times. And these are two guys that are on the upswing of their careers. Well, you know, at, at this posi- position in their career, bro, they uh... – we knew their upswing was not going to happen unless Hawk and I. Hey, did you see that? Not, not to interrupt you, but did you see that nimble 310-pound guy running and hitting those ropes and leapfrogging and all that stuff there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, bro. Let me tell you. you besides that little that little thing growing out of the back of your neck, I, I mean, you you look to be in some pretty – this is 20 years ago, so you're, yeah. you're what, 39 here, 37? Uh, 37, yes. Okay, so you're 37 years old here. And you've you know you've been doing this for about 15 years now, and you're yeah. still keeping up the uh, the big body look. Yeah, yeah, man. But but no, back to the New Age Outlaws. You know, listen, we knew backstage that they were never going to be one of the, respected by the fans as being a great team unless we did something to help them. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a bad mistake right there <laughs> <laughs> on my part. You know, to do something to help them, right? But so. In order to help them, we had to let them beat us. You know what I mean? And that's just part of the wrestling business and building talent all the way around. So, I mean, the Hawk and I, being businessmen, said, okay, we'll drop the belts to these guys. We don't care. And you- I, but listen, who are the pe- when we have the titles, the people aren't going to want to see us chase these guys and beat these guys because they're brand new mm-hmm. unless they have the belts, you know? So you got to have someone you can chase in the wrestling business. And you guys, uh, you head outside the ring right now as they, uh, they're they playing the nice heel role here. They have the belts. They know they don't have to win the match by pinning you one, two, three. So they're trying to escape a few times here. I'll get into the notes here. Dave Meltzer writes about this match that Gunn and James are due for an even bigger push in the future. They got the belts at this point in time because LOD was taken off the books after this week for a relatively short hiatus. Of course, when we see you guys come back, you're LOD 2000, and you're going to have Sonny with you. They stalled a lot before the match, claiming that Gunn was ill. He may have very well been because he didn't tag in until the six-minute mark and looked terrible once he got in. And here we go. I will let you. I think he was sick, bro. I think he did have the flu or something. I, I will read this. Let me read this, and then I will let you respond. Bad match with an even worse finish. Hawk sold most of the match and made a hot tag. They set up the doomsday device, and that is when Henry Godwin runs in and clocks Animal with the slot bucket. Hawk got the bucket and hit both Gunn and James and threatened the ref with it, who got them DQ'd. He lists this as a dud of a match. Well, you know what? Let me tell you something, Joe. Back then, 
and I'm going to say this plainly in the eyes of the wrestlers there, no one gave a shit what Dave Meltzer thought. No one was respecting Dave Meltzer. No one gave a shit about his cheat sheets because half the time, all the stuff that he would say and, and recommend on, he was wrong, and he never could guess the angle or what the finish was going to be. Now, along the times, that's probably one of the only times that Dave Meltzer said anything negative about Hawk and I because throughout my career, Dave Meltzer has always been great. And now I respect Dave Meltzer on a different level because he's more truthful and he doesn't blast guys. When you have a guy blasting a match who hasn't done dick, not put a foot in the ring and experienced it, really used to piss the guys off, okay? But now it's not. Now Dave has is, is, is got a little credibility in the business. He's been around for a long time. He's got it in with the offices now. And so it's, it's a different ball game today. Listen, back then in this match, you got to understand, Hawk had just no, found out that he got tested positive, okay? And we were going to have a three-month hiatus. That's what this was. We talked about hiatus. So Hawk's trying to be a businessman here, basically saying, I'm sorry, and that's why he's selling so much in this match and why we did the finish the way we did. I mean, listen, that, was, that happened a few times in the wrestling business, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, that's just the way it goes. You know, you have to do something set up to come back. If Hawk is the one that tests positive, why do you take the pin on on Raw? Is it just because of because it the way that you guys set up the Doomsday device and the way that made the most sense? Well, that makes the most sense, man. If I'm the guy with the guy on the top of my shoulders, and you come in with a chair and blast me, it, it was supposed to be a quick roll up, one, two, three, kick out, and be pissed off. But since the referee was late, you know, I I was rolled up a little longer, and I wanted to be rolled up. Now today, they 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 would have really got on the referee and really bitched him out because he was late on it, you know. What does it say for somebody like Billy Gunn who had a successful tag team run as uh, with the Smoking Guns and then also has another successful tag team run with, uh, with Brian James? And I guess you could say he was part of another tag team that, I, I, you know, when he was chucking Billy that it kind of was over for a bit with the crowd. But as far as tag team wrestlers go, what – what about Billy Gunn made him so special or made him so good that he was able to have these runs as a tag team guy with three different people? To be honest with you, man, I think Billy would have been better as a single. You know, I mean, listen, Billy today has got a better look than any single wrestler in WWE right now. He's got a better physique than Roman Reigns. He's got a better physique than anybody else in the company. And... If you were to bring him back as DX Billy Gunn, I think that would be <clears> – <throat> I think the fans would love it, especially if he walked down the ring with Shawn Michaels a couple of times to get him a little bit of credibility, even with Brian James would have put the bandana on and come down. And Brian James now – Brian doesn't have to get in the ring, you know. <clears throat> but unless, it- unless you're in here doing these moves, <clears throat> you know, and for a guy like Meltzer to say this kind of stuff back then would really piss us off. You're not in there throwing around 250-pound guys, Melzer, so you don't know what the heck you're talking about. You know what I mean? You're not throwing drop kicks. You're not doing flying tackles. You're not doing power slams. You're not doing press slams. So don't go saying that the match, you know, I get, guys, the guys in our business get a little offended when guys make comments like that. We're, we're seeing the end coming here. We see Hawk and now you calling for the doomsday device, so I'm going to let you talk through how this, uh, how this match ends. Well... <clears throat> I think it ends with uh, Henry coming down with the bucket, blasting me, and then the whole thing gets DQ'd out. Not yet. It's going to take a while, but why Why just Henry? Where was Phineas at the time? 
you know, I don't know, man. I don't know if Phineas was suspended at the time or not suspended. You know, I don't know where Phineas was. So we have, yeah, you see Hawk comes out and he swings the uh, bucket around. And that takes us to the uh, that takes us to the DQ of the uh, of the match. And Hawk has uh, Hawk has just cost you guys a chance at winning your tag titles back. So they go. Uh, so yeah, Henry Godwin gets uh, causes Hawk to come in and cause the uh, cause the DQ. Hawk gets you guys disqualified, and the group that will soon be known as the New Age Outlaws runs away again with the tag titles. And they're also walking out with Henry with Henry Godwin. So that's you know, I, I, I think if I remember, man, we came back and I think one of the I can't remember. I think the Godwins were one of the teams who wrestled right away. But see, here, well, that would make here, sense, here, yeah. But you're I mean, you're also going away for 90, 90 days, yeah. and we're going to get into exactly how that happened but too. Here's the thing, here, man. It, see with the people here. Every time we lost was a chant of LOD, <clears throat> and you know they the people know what should happen. And at this point in the wrestling business, you got to understand, Joe, they knew when someone was getting beat that shouldn't get beat was a hand slap. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You're getting slapped for something that was being done, and you're getting punished. So this is 97, and you don't see nowadays uh, somebody gets suspended, they're immediately off TV. But here, without the internet, a guy is able to test positive, and then they're able to work it into a, a storyline. Yeah. Right now, if a guy gets injured or you you know that he's going to be out for a, a, a amount of time we usually see a situation where you get a you know you'll you'll see maybe the guy's going off to film a movie or his you know he's got some time off coming something like that you see that happen but in other cases with the internet you usually know when these things are. I mean when Roman Reigns got popped yeah. for that suspension a few years ago mm -hmm. he was off right away right the WWE had to come out and announce that he was suspended for 30 days, and it was effective immediately. Well, bro, it's a, it's a different stage in the business today because now with the internet and everything there and the network and everything else, right, you guys are not going to take the chance anymore for mm -hmm. substance abuse. Uh, yeah, all, you say that, but, no, but yeah, it but, happens. But, but here, once in a while, man, but not like it did before. <clears throat> now with all the lawsuits going on for the concussion syndrome and everything else, and uh, equal rights as an employer and everything going on with WWE, there's and they they don't need any more headaches. So I'm sure they made it loud and clear to the guys working for them. You better walk a straight line and keep everything straight. You know, right? And the money, you know, is is really good too today. Where well, the people are make, the guys aren't making money so much on the wrestling end of it. Mm -hmm. They're making money on the ancillary rights. Right. All the the sponsorship money and everything else. You got to be on TV to get those, though. You got to be on TV yeah. to get those. Nobody's know. buying a box of Bootios if New Day isn't on TV for three months. Exactly, and if and if New Day doesn't get four segments on the show, you know, where they're interrupting, you know, this match or that match, and then they got their own promo, and then they got their own match, you know. So they come out on TV at least two or three times a show usually. I'll, uh, I'll go through how you guys end up getting written off TV here the very next night uh, in Portland. It's WWF Raw's War and Shotgun in Portland, Maine. Legion of Doom goes to a no contest with the Godwins. LOD versus Godwins ended when Kane came out and destroyed Hawk with a pile driver that Hawk didn't sell. And then a crummy looking choke slam that Hawk did sell. 
and then a Tombstone pile driver, which would be the first pile driver Hawk ever sold in his life. This according to Dave Meltzer. Billy Gunn and Jesse James then beat up Hawk after and challenged anyone in the house to a singles match. So Kane comes out and destroys Hawk then. The following night in Durham, New Hampshire. <clears throat> Tell me the last time that Raw has been in Durham, New Hampshire. I don't even remember being in it the first time. <laughs> It's on the uh, December 9th. It's again raw and shotgun tapings. Legion of Doom beats Shawn Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley via DQ. The main event saw LOD beat DX when China interfered. After the match, Billy Gunn and Jesse James join DX and destroy LOD, including shaving Hawk's head. This was the angle to set up LOD being gone until late January. So they had you guys in a match with DX uh, to write you off. That way, they rate you off with DX jumping you and shaving your head instead of, I think that's, you know, tell me what you think about this, and I have a feeling I know which way you're going to go with it, having a monster like Kane be the one to put you guys out of business as we, as you saw the night before, would, would have been the week before. Yeah, well, you know, Kane was hot at that time. I mean, Kane was just brand new, and he was hot, and, you know, it was a, it's a heck, of, heck of a character. It, it, listen, even back then, even the shaving of Hawk's mohawk was Hawk's idea. He was shaved by Mohawk. See, <clears throat> here's the thing, man, about Hawk. He had his negatives, but his positives outweighed his negatives, and he had a heart of gold, and he was a consummate businessman in that aspect. You know, he knew he was going away. He volunteered to do the jobs. He volunteered to shave his head. And still, you know, there's this underlying heart on, if you will, you know, like I told you before in the past, Joe, I've not done one autograph signing, WrestleMania signing, or anything for WWE. And we're on their website as the greatest tag team of all time, but you don't ever see me doing any appearances. There's just this underlying thing, I think, of all the suspension that Hawk had. God rest him, man. I love the guy to death. But he has had this weakness of wanting to be a man's man and doing what he wanted to do. And as long, but you got to understand, though, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of circumstances back here, Joe, that people don't understand. You got to think of this: <clears throat> when you go in to work for a company, you say, "Okay, you shake hands. This is what I expect to make." And you go in there and you make a hundred thousand dollars less than what he's telling you you're going to make. That leaves a little dent on your ego and your wallet. Then you go in there next year and you talk to him again. Hey, man. We're supposed to make this this year. Come, you said with marketing and everything else. We're on all your underwear, you know, and bedspreads and you know pillowcases and everything else. And then you make still another a hundred grand less again. Then you get a little bit pissed off. And how many times do you take it before it's an insult? Before they're kicking you in the privates, right? And that's the way Hawk took it. Hawk said, "Listen, you screwed me two years in a row." I'm not going to let you tell me what I can do as a grown man anymore until you come front and be a businessman first. Once you show me you want to be a businessman, I'll abide by the rules. But show me. And that's what WWE, and that's and when you do something like that with Vince, you're going to butt heads and you're not going to win. Because at the end of the day, he owns the company, he owns the TV. You know? The, uh, the next match up is Hunter Hearst Helmsley. This is before he's going uh, full-on Triple H, so it's still Hunter Hearst Helmsley in a boot camp match against Sergeant Slaughter. I, I imagine well, that, that must be looking like it's pre-GH there, too. 
Oh, this is I, this is well before yeah. he. Yeah, I mean he he doesn't really blow up and get huge. Triple H didn't get into that big huge Triple H that we knew from the two thousands. I I want to say until he tore his quad and while he was rehabbing for those several months, I just lifted so much. And not only did well, he you know not only did he get huge then, that was also around the time he met Stephanie. It was all upper body. That's all, he yeah. had to, that's all he could do back then, too. But look at China in this. And China looks great in this shot. Your your first impressions, your first meeting of China. I know we're going to really get into a, a lot of stuff with Sergeant Slaughter, not only in this, not only here in this match, but I'm sure we're going to have you know episodes devoted to Sergeant Slaughter, given your relationship with him. But I don't know how much we're going to talk about China over the uh, over the time. So your initial thoughts on meeting China? Well, I totally look at her physically. Just a physical specimen. I mean, the girl was huge. I mean, she was about 5'10", 5'11", and she's built like, you know, a brick shit house. I mean, the girl's strong as heck. I remember watching her to work out, and hell, man, she, at this time in, in the game, she was lifting as much weight as Hunter on a lot of exercises. As a, as a guy that spent so much time in the gym, um, who – did you ever see any I – mean, how did she compare? Is she the, the biggest that you've seen as far as lifting, a woman lifting-wise? Or were there others that were that we could maybe even put her not, in shape? Uh, not in the wrestling business there wasn't. But, you know, around the world, you got to understand, there's a lot of strong bodybuilder mm-hmm. girls, and there's a lot of strong women powerlifters. Like Paul Ellering's daughter, Rachel, is a phenomenal mm-hmm. powerlifter in her day, was probably stronger than China strength-wise. But, you know, everybody's got their gimmick list that they're strong at. I mean, you look at – China's shoulders are like two softballs on there, you know, and she got big old triceps on her and biceps too. I mean, she was built at this point in time in her, in her career, you know. At, at the end of the day, what people don't know, like look at her right there at her shoulders and traps. <clears throat> people don't realize that China was rock solid and was a great piece of talent. I mean, she was really good. She was way ahead of the time for the wrestling business, you know, and she was a sweetheart, man. She was a very, very nice person. And uh, had the softest voice. That's why you never really heard China talk very much, because she had a voice like Minnie Mouse, in that massive body. But uh, man, she was a great person, man. I'm sorry to see her go. When she um, when she first came in, were you guys already in when she came in, or was she already there when you guys came back? Uh, she was already there when we came back. So you see her. That would have been you guys would have been coming over from WCW. And you come in and you see her first time you see her. I mean, what do you think? Are you thinking like, I mean, my God, is this a, is this a man? Is no, is right. this a weightlifter? Is this a wrestler? Is she wrestling men? What, I said, what? holy crap! Look at the size of this girl. That's exactly what I said. And it was great. She was great. Listen, do you talk lifting with her? Do you talk yeah, weightlifting with her? Listen, at the t- this time of the career, you understand with all the things that Hawk was going through. Hawk rad Hawk rode with I call the. The smoke car. I mean, he, he he rode with Hawk and Big Boss Man and Mr. Perfect. They all traveled together, and they were the party guys. Mm-hmm. I went with the workout people. So it was either me, Warlord, or me and Warlord and British Bulldog, or I would go Triple H and Hunter, or, or Triple H and China if they were by themselves. Say, hey, Animal, I see you traveling by yourselves, man. You want to come work out with us? And they would call me in the morning. I'd go ride with them and go train at, with the gym with them. That's the relationship you had with certain people. And, and 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 Joni or China would always call and say, hey, "Animal, do you, you want to go work out? Then did you go work out?" Because she knew I was never going to refuse to go work out. Right. right. So uh, yeah, I always found time, and it worked out with the gym there, with those guys a bunch of times. 
what it, it, you're on the road. First of all, because you you always hear, you know, here in St. Louis, whenever the WWE is in town, you'll hear from certain people. I saw, you know, I saw this guy at my gym this morning, or I saw this person at this gym. How do you, or how did you back in the day go about finding a gym when you were on the road? Did you know of one, or did you just show up and pay maybe a day pass, or see if you can get a free pass, or just universal memberships to other gyms? How did that work? Well, no, man. Listen, if a gym, if a guy owns a gym in this city or any city, for a matter of fact, and you see somebody that's on TV coming into your gym, you shouldn't charge them a dime because word of mouth's going to get around that this guy's here, and if, if people that have not been in your gym hear these guys are here, they're going to want to come see around when these guys come again and just hang around to get an autograph or a picture. If you get one person to come in and buy a membership from doing that, that pays for these guys to train free. So there would either be a Gold's Gym a world gym or a powerhouse gym anywhere around the country. And we all had the same gym, whether Chicago was world gym. You go out to L.A., it's Gold's Gym. You know that? You go out to Minneapolis, you worked out at our place called the gym. Right here, we go to a place called Complete Fitness or the Gold's Gym in St. Charles right here in Missouri when guys come in town. So the old, there's always a gym in every city that you can go to work out. I remember going to Las Vegas and working out at George Eiferman's gym. That was a classic, man. George Eiferman was around a bodybuilder for years, and we'd go work out there. You know, so yeah, there's a gym in every city. So when you guys go to this gym, and I, I would imagine that to see you and Hawk in a gym lifting what you're doing, you know, benching whatever 650 freaking pounds or whatever it was, <laughs> stupid guys were I call doing. It stupid yeah, then no, it's it's really really stupid. Anything, yeah, with everything that you guys were doing at the 600-pound range was all stupid. But so, obviously, eyes are going to be going towards you in these gyms, and I'm sure that happened all throughout the 80s and the 90s when you guys were going around. Add China into the mix, though. What is that like in a gym when you have all these other meatheads and muscle heads in this gym, and suddenly they see China walking in there and putting up more than what they're putting up? Bro, it's funny. You can imagine seeing, you know, okay, see me walking in, right, with, I think at the time I had 23 or 24-inch arms. My one arm was bigger than a lot of, a lot of women's waist. I know it's definitely in my daughter's, both my daughter's waist for sure. <clears throat> and then you have Joni come in, or China, who's got like a, an 18-inch arm for a girl. That's freaking huge, bro. I mean, that, that's a big arm for a woman. And not only that, she's using some weight. She ain't yep. like pussyfooting around. I saw her doing military presses, man, like behind-the-neck presses with – 185. A lot of guys weren't using 185. They still don't use 185. And this ain't no Smith machine. This is free weight pressing. <laughs> yeah, bro. She's as strong as a bull, man. She, you know, she's a, a big, strong girl. Can we talk about this quickly, this match for a second? Sergeant Slaughter is 49 years old when this match is going. And he just got thrown into the turnbuckle and just went over the top of the turnbuckle onto the floor. At 49 years old in a backstage role, Sergeant Slaughter just went over the top rope onto the floor of the uh, uh, for this match. To and he's I mean, honestly, the whole point of this is Sarge is putting over Triple H in this well, in this match and make, taking these bumps at 49. You're trying to make Triple H. I mean, and, and right now Sarge is, was one of the top baby faces there. He was the commissioner, yeah. Top good guys commissioner, right? He decides to come in the match. I mean, Hawk and I had plenty of battles with Sarge. You know, against Sarge and Jerry Blackwell. I watched Sarge when I first started wrestle 
uh, Ric Flair and uh, Greg DeHammer Valentine and Ricky Steamboat, you know. Uh, he is a great guy. He's one of those guys from that era that could wrestle anybody. In a boot camp match where there's no disqualification, the uh, timekeeper just tried to keep the bell away from uh, away from Triple H. Yeah. So that's a little mistake there in the booking. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Triple H just tried to hit him with it, and Sarge stopped the bell coming. So I knew no way in heck was Sarge going to get hit in the head with that bell. And the shape that Sarge, I mean, Sarge is not in the greatest of shape here. But when you come back for a match like this. How much, how much do you think you know ahead of time that you're going to be in this? I mean, how far in advance is the storyline written for this? And how, I guess, how long did Sarge have the plan and how quickly can you get back into shape to do it? I mean, this is a 17-minute match, what they're, what they're putting on well, here. Well, bro, here, here's the thing, man. The wrestling is like riding a bike. Once you've learned how to do it, you know what to do. Right. It's not like you're having nervous energy anymore, which blows you up and you want to throw up after the first two seconds, right? You know, so... That and Sarge is a consummate professional. At forty nine, he's already been wrestling for shit thirty years. Probably, you know? so, yeah. yeah. So he knows he's doing. And to be honest with you, Sarge was never a ripped up guy and felt in the business. You know what I mean? I mean, look at most of the army guys who sergeants and, and colonels in the army. They're not ripped up guys. They're desk. They're desk yeah, guys. They're right not on the front lines, right? No, yeah, you're desk guys right now. So. Sarge had got away with that, but he did his gimmick so great. And, you know, after being in the Sergeant Slaughter and the cartoons and everything else, Sarge was a household name. Mm-hmm. Now, China, the whole match had been wearing a, uh, wearing a chain around her, uh, around her neck that she just hands to a Triple H here. Back to China for a bit because I'm really enjoying some of these stories here, and I know that we're, and there's plenty, <laughs> going to be plenty of time that we're going to talk about Triple H and, and Sergeant Slaughter. At these gyms, did you ever see anybody try to hit on China, try to maybe get a number or something, and then see the rejection in that uh, – see the rejection there for, uh, for China? Nah, I, I want to hear what that, what that kid, would have bro, been like. Are you kidding me? Half the guys in the gyms were – I hate to say it – were like, kind of like pussies. <laughs> right. Intimidated for China. I mean, here's China coming and walking in here. I mean, she's a 185-pound chick. Yeah. I mean, ripped up and strong. <laughs> I mean, we go back to the shot on this paper right. you here. You see her shoulders. She's got freaking softballs yeah. on there for shoulders. But man. some of these guys are probably, you know, turned on by seeing a woman in the gym lifting. So I know that, you know, at this time she's with Triple H, though, right? Like, sure, her and Hunter are dating at this time. But I still, I would love to to know or would love to have seen one of these guys go up and try to I mean, try look to at, hit look on at her, her, and her, her shot. Look at her in this shot, man. Right. Even if somebody went to go buy her in the gym and try to grab her butt. They probably break a nail on their finger. That, no, yeah, that's sure that, her, I, but, you know, trust, when hard. when you see you're looking at her shoulders and her traps there. My eyes immediately go to her ass in, in this to see you know because you could tell that that's you know it it's as hard as a rock. Well, bro, there wasn't one ripple in her body that was negative back then. You know, and listen, you got to understand today. There's so many different outlets to get to know the guys in wrestling and girls in wrestling. It's a lot different. You're still with the intimidation factor here. And, you know, DX is getting formed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're at a level where people don't know who they can trust or what they could do with everybody. You're letting the crowd decide. Yeah, it's the not crowd, like, you yeah, know. So it's, there's it, a little bit of an intimidation right. factor. You know this what I mean? isn't Sergeant Slaughter being an Iraqi sympathizer, Bro. and <laughs> you know that you are supposed to hate him. This is kind of, you have Stone Cold, 
going against the authority of Vince McMahon. Yep. You have DX. DX's first feud is with the authority figure of Sergeant Slaughter to where you're looking at this, and, you know, yes, they're making Sergeant Slaughter out to be a fool. They're, they're looking at him as the old-timer that doesn't get it anymore, and they're making fun of him. They're making fun of that he spits when he talks and all this stuff to where you're kind of laughing at it, and you're going, I wish I could do that to my boss. These guys are doing it to their boss. Hey, these guys are kind of cool where there might be some people out there, the older fan, that are looking at this and saying, how dare you disrespect Sergeant Slaughter like that? Well, bro, you know, at a point in time here when, when, the, when the company went real dark, as they called it, and uh, they did this for, what, four or five years, went real dark. That's why they went back to fan-friendly entertainment. Right. Because yeah, yeah. They got the PG rating. You're able yeah, to yeah, get yeah. on more TVs. You're able to sell more toys and everything. Bro, if, yeah. you, if you go back to that last shot with China sitting there, if you didn't know better, with that chin, she looked like Sergeant Slaughter's daughter. <laughs> and here, <laughs> at 49 years old, Sergeant Slaughter's going top rope, and I'm just going to guess, much like Ric Flair, it's never going to work out for him. And this, yes, it's very... <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's right? like every time Ric Flair ever went to the top rope. You knew he was getting slammed on it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, slammed or suplexed or You something. knew that yeah. exact move was something, going to happen. Them. But, you know, but you're, t- you're talking about a dark time in the wrestling business right now, right? And so it's – this is the way that they're going towards that real area of darkness. Like, I, I, I'd be quite honest with you, guys like me who paved the way for a lot of these guys, it, it was almost an insult at the, at the time. You know, when they had the super soakers and they were holding them down by the private areas, mm-hmm. making sure make sure they were peeing on everybody, that got to be a little bit uh, out of hand. Right, and you you know you're at home with with kids. You you're at home with a bunch of young young kids. I mean, how this would have been 20 years ago, so James would have been 10. Yeah. Right. right uh, yeah, Jessica right. would have been two years earlier than that. Two, so she would have been eight. And yeah, then uh, yeah. so then then you had Joey, who was a few years older than that. Joe, Joe was about 14, 15. But oh. still, you're an right. impressionable age exactly. here. You know. And, uh, you know, it, you got to understand this whole area of why they were doing things when Hawk got suspended, really what people don't understand what a toll it takes on your home life. Because when you, you know your family and your friends and your, your kids all know the way you are as a person and the intestinal fortitude you have and what you stand for, what is right and wrong and everything else. And then you, you go on the match and you're getting hit in the head with a slot bucket or – you're getting rolled up by DX doing something, and these guys are being real nasty to society. It sends a mixed message to young kids. You know what I mean? And that, that to me, was a real important thing, man. It's about doing everything right. Well, yeah, and, you know, this is they, they were going for that teenage audience. I mean, probably not for 10-year-olds like James, but they really wanted to draw in the the fourteen year olds like oh, like yeah. what Joey would have been at the time. Sure. And I remember, like I said, I was twelve at this time. I would have, you know, every day at school. You walk into school Tuesday morning. You're sitting down. We were sitting down in the gymnasium waiting for school to start, and it's only talking about everything that happened on Raw the night before. Everything that happened on, you know, you're, you're talking about what happened on Nitro, what happened on Raw, and as a twelve year old, the stuff that happened on Raw was a heck of a lot cooler. Because, you know, that was – they, they were interrupting her, bro. I'm looking at China's yeah. trap. She's laughing my ass off here. Is that uh, Jack Doan that she just knocked out there? Oh, yeah, it is. Poor Jack just get, get the right cross from China. <laughs> Those babies weren't light either. And oh, China, now she's getting a chair. Okay, here you go. I think we're cl- – I don't think we're at the full <laughs> end of the match yet because I, I watched this a couple days ago, and I, I do kind of remember what happens leading up to it. 
So I don't think we're at the end here. But is there miscommunication there? China goes over and takes the chair to Triple H, and Triple H tells her to take it into the ring herself. So is that a little miscommunication there, or do you think that's – Well, I don't know, man. I never got involved in their finish. Him. I wouldn't have known what they were doing. But the Sarge had some white powder that he threw in the face of, uh, of China and uh, gets her out of, the, uh, out of the ring. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great. You don't even see stuff like this anymore. Triple H hits Sergeant uh, Sarge with his boot, uh, but Triple Must H be a wearing loaded steel toe boots. Triple H wearing uh, wearing jeans. They do mention uh, Sarge's steel toed boots during the match. They do make mention of that, and he misses him with the second one, and he gets locked in that Cobra Clutch. Cobra clutch. When uh, how many times were you ever locked in the Cobra Clutch? I think one time, man. Only one time. Well, he wrestled Hawk or Sarge and uh, Jerry Blackwell. I was so pumped up for that match, man. I went to press. I went to press, slam Jerry Blackwell. I could have press slammed him. Jerry was four fifty. <laughs> oh yeah, he was. He went up like a feather. It. Uh, Dave Meltzer does write in the notes that Sergeant Slaughter. We were talking about his weight here or his fitness. Says he looks about forty pounds overweight. Uh, in here, and you know, like we said, this is a guy that hadn't been in the ring. And how many years? I mean, so this is Sergeant Slaughter hadn't been in the ring for a while before this. Well, you know what, bro. When Meltzer would make these comments back then, Joe, you know what the guys in our business would say? Hey, Meltzer, who the hell did you beat? <laughs> you do see the uh, you do see China come in and give him the uh, low blow from behind. She's still trying to wipe the uh, white out of her eyes. Um, I'm I'm going to refrain from making the joke there with that for China's future. In the, uh, with, with well, I'll be the first. X Pac. <laughs> One night in China. <laughs> That's yeah, and uh, that's uh, that's that's what the future holds for her. And we're about to see the end of the match here, so I'll let you talk through it. The uh, the the finish here with Triple H using the uh, the pedigree. Had anybody used this move before? Had you ever seen anybody use this no, move, or is this no. a? It, it's it's a, it's amazing to think that with the DDT, you know, being what it is, it's basically a DDT or you know, a pile driver between the legs. How did nobody ever come up with that it's finish a, before 1997 combo. in Triple H? Well, I mean, it's it's a different type of finish. I mean, unless you don't unless you do it right, it really doesn't look good. But he did it really well and it makes it look good. You know, it's, listen, it's just like our finish to Doomsday. I mean, no one has done our finish again in the wrestling business. It was the way Hawk and I did it was so different than everybody else. I mean, I I was hoisting guys like Henry Godwin at 365 pounds. On my shoulders. I mean, heck, I got earthquake up one time. God, how, how pumped were you when you had to do that? I was 320 pounds when I did it of rock-solid muscle. Like, and then the earthquake at the time was about 450 pounds. Uh, Dave Meltzer gave this match two stars. So after two duds in a row, the Butterbean and Mark Merrill match and then giving your match – a, uh, a dud, he uh, gets back to actually scoring some of these matches and gives it, gives it two stars. At what point did you come in? I mean, you, you know, this, this leads from Hunter Hearst Helmsley becoming Triple H and the rise of DX. I, you know, we're slowly starting to see the personality that Triple H has here now that he's been teamed up with Shawn Michaels. At what point did you know that Triple H had it and could uh, could be a star away now that he had kind of branched out into this gimmick? Well, man, I knew Triple H had it with it's the company you keep. You know, Shawn Michaels' best bud. And, you know, Shawn was 
Vince's golden boy because Sean was with Vince during all the dark years and mm -hmm. low money years, so and Sean stuck with Vince. So and when you do Triple H, maybe Triple H is no dummy. He knew what what where to go for that ticket to keep being cashed in, you know. And, and he had talent, you know what I mean. And and then he when he hung around with Sean, and then he wrestled guys, you know, like. You know, Ric Flair and Undertaker, you know, Triple H started going through the roof. We're about to hear, uh, we see Jeff Jarrett on the screen now being interviewed by Michael Cole. Jeff Jarrett, I, I don't even know which run this is in the company for him at this point. The way he what jumped. What is that freaking Shazam looking outfit he's got on? He's got the big, it's not really a robe, it's kind of like an overcoat that yeah, you've seen, you know, you see The Undertaker wear something like that, but it's usually all black and it might have Bro, a few spikes he looks coming like out of it. George Jetson. It, you know Off what? That's Jetsons. yeah. That's a uh, that it's blue and orange with the white on it. And he is the one Jeff. Jar you know, he's the the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett. He's the the greatest uh, on earth. He has this gimmick where like he's looking for colors going in. Yeah, there, he's bro. he's looking for competition coming from Smoky Mountain, coming from the uh, you know he he's. Wants all of this. He he wants this competition. He wants to wrestle the big guys. And they put him in the ring with the uh, with the Undertaker as he's coming down to the uh, to the ring. I imagine you know Jeff Jarrett for quite some years as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I worked for his dad, Memphis. Your thoughts on on working with his on working with his dad? I think a lot of people in the podcast world now hear the name Jerry Jarrett and don't think too highly of it. Uh, nah, your thoughts bro, on Jerry, Jerry? Well, Jerry had some heat back then, man. He was a ruthless businessman. Uh, we didn't we knew Jerry and respected Jerry. He respected us. We didn't have to deal with Jerry very much. Paul Ellering did because Paul did a lot of our bookings back then. So what would Paul think of Jerry Jarrett? Uh, well, Paul worked for Jerry. Paul knew how to work with Jerry. And, you know, and Paul, Paul being an experienced guy in the wrestling business, knew any of the BS lines and any top promoters were trying to throw at mm -hmm. us. So Paul deflected a, a lot of that stuff for Hawk and I. As we, as we mentioned, Jeff Jarrett kind of jumps back and forth uh, quite a bit at this point in his career, going from the WWF back to WCW, going back and forth. And, you know, he had the run as Double J. He was teamed up with Tennessee. He gets teamed up eventually with Tennessee Lee and the Godwins as the uh, as Southern Justice are his bodyguards in one of his runs. I I really do get confused as to which run this is. <laughs> you know, then, then again, when he uh, was had his run with Owen Hart, as they were both going back and forth, being the Blue Meanie, as or not the Blue Meanie, the Blue Blazer. The blue Sorry, blazer. Uh, they they do that. You see the Undertaker here, the lights out, the blue lights on his um, on his entrance. Is this the coolest entrance in in professional wrestling, the Undertaker's, or was there one that that you think topped it? Uh, and you can't at, say your you can't say your own for this answer. No, no, no. You can't say you got to give me at, if it's not this, Undertaker. You got to say somebody at else. At this point in time, for a single wrestler, he is the man, the greatest, uh, the greatest entrance of all time. I'll never forget when we were in London, England, at the Royal Albert Hall, which is a historic building for opera and any kind of real cool events. We wrestled in there. I think Hawk and I beat Power and Glory in there in five minutes. But, uh, and they had a real pipe organ in there. I mean, an authentic freaking 100-year-old pipe organ. And they played Undertaker's music. It was freaking awesome. It was the greatest sounding organ I've ever heard. So that music, when it started playing, I didn't like any of the new music he had when he became the biker and then right. later in his career. 
I didn't like that music. I liked his first beginning new music that I think he should have stayed with. But he had, you know, he had Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit doing his music when he was the uh, when he was the biker gimmick, when he was the American badass. Uh, a few years from from this point, but you see him coming down the ring. I did want to bring up. I meant to bring it up during the last match because Sergeant Slaughter, if you if you had the music on for it, Sergeant Slaughter, the music he comes down to is what Kurt Angle uses today, which I believe is what the Patriot used when he yeah. the Patriot was uh sure. was it Del um, Del Wilkes Del Wilkes the Patriot used that music before Kurt Angle used that music and they had it for Sergeant Slaughter. And I did want to bring up with The Undertaker's music coming out, too, that uh, get your thoughts on, I don't know if you saw this, that Jim Johnston had uh, Johnston had recently been released from the company, the guy that made all of those songs, the oh, guy really? that did all of the music uh, just recently released. He hadn't been making music for them in quite some years, was doing a lot of work on the film side of it. Now, would he have done your music? Would he have thrown you guys? Was, was it him or was it Jimmy Hart that threw you in the studio with the WWF? And did the music at the time, uh, the Oh, What a Rush. Well, the Oh, What a Rush is before our show. It was before our show one time, and they recorded it at a show. Would we that were, have been Jim that recorded it, or had you no, guys bro, come we, in and do we it? we were at the curtain. We were at the curtain, and we, they gave us a handheld mic because Hawk always did the Oh, What a Rush at the end of the interview. And they said, hey, man, let's do this. We're going to record this thing, and then we're going to stick it on the front of the music. So... Hawk grabbed the microphone right there as the curtains right in front of us and went, what a rush. Bam. That kept, the, that kept the other rush. So you guys didn't have any say afterwards in the music that you guys used? No, but nothing was said about the uh, – or you guys, you know, when you first heard it, did you guys get to hear it backstage first? Or was it, hey, you guys are about to go out, music hits? We were we, – well – we, no, we, that was live. When Hawk did the Old Water Rush at that particular time was live, and then we went, and then our music kicked in. They timed it perfectly, and then they just kept, they cleaned it up a little bit after that, and they kept it. I mean, look at Undertaker here, man. Look at the size of Undertaker on this side. Undertaker's huge right here. Which Undertaker, I mean, you, you, you first met him in, uh, would it have been in WCW or would it have been before that? Would you have met him at met all? Him in, uh, WCW with Jim Hurd was the boss there. Okay. Taker came in. He was one of the, the uh, Twin Towers. Who would he have been with then? Danny Spivey. Okay. And uh, Teddy Long was her manager. Okay. Okay. And uh, and you just knew him me, as this big MFer. Me, me, Mark Callis. Yeah. He wasn't this big here. He was just a skinny redhead back then. So he was skinnier then. Skinny redhead mullet. Okay. Yeah, I thought long. he was. I thought he was bigger and then got no, into better shape no, as the years went on. Yeah, he did. He looked great here. But in the beginning, when we saw him, now this is probably five years after we first met him. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, Mark Callis, Mead Mark, and uh, he had had the, I wish I could find a picture, bro. He had the biggest redheaded mullet. But you knew he had talent, though. I mean, we were in those small 14-foot WCW rings, and he would fly, leapfrog, dropkick, leapfrog, dropkick, and he was a pretty quick guy for his size. You know, Mark was a pretty good college basketball player. Another, another Texas boy. I remember when James played for Ohio State. We played uh, the University of Texas. You know, he and, uh, and JBL. Uh, JBL would give me the hook'em horn sign, and you know, and I'd have to give him the OHIO for the Buckeyes. And the first time that Ohio State played Texas, James's uh, sophomore year, it was awesome, man. Texas was on the move, and 
James disrupts a play and knocks the ball for a fumble, and then Ohio State took over the game after that. Was that been the Vince Young years, or was that a would that no, have been before Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy, man. Yeah, James had uh, two interceptions, a fumble recovery, and 14 tackles that game. It was pretty good. And you were just able to be in the back talking shit to uh, the Undertaker oh, about, what, bro. No, I was about what your son was doing. I was at the game, <laughs> and those guys were giving me hook'em horns texting me and stuff, you know. The the uh the old school, the walking the tightrope, the walking the uh the top rope move from the Undertaker. Yeah. Your thoughts on on that move? Loved it, man. Because he was a big I mean, look at the size of him right here. He's a big guy, right? I think he stopped doing it because, you know, throughout the year. Well, he'll still do it. He, he'll, I mean, well, he only wrestles once a year at WrestleMania yeah. now, but he, he, he'll he bring out all the moves. Yeah. Well, people realize, man, your body can heal a lot in a year when you wrestle once a year, and he's got real bad hips now. So it's hard for him to do that move, although he'll do it. You know, it's amazing once you your music hits and you walk to the ring, what you forget pain-wise that you go and do. How did Jim Hurd mess it up? If he, you're talking about the talent level that he had as Mean Mark Callis being able to fly around the ring, how how does that get screwed up? And how does it only work by giving him? I mean, let's 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 call it Undertaker. I will say this: Undertaker is my favorite wrestler of all time. He is the reason why I started watching wrestling, uh, watching you know, and watching him win the belt from Sid at WrestleMania 13. That he is the reason why I've watched wrestling for all of these years and have gotten so into it. How does it take? I mean, a goofy gimmick of him being a dead mortician to get over in the business, and how is he not able to get over as just a big badass? Well, Jim Jim Herb was an idiot. <laughs> Plain and simple, was an idiot. If he would spend, if he would have spent more time in trying to get WCW to where he needed to be and use the guys he had in the stable there instead of trying to be a tough guy at five foot seven, like he could battle with everybody else and let the guys that know how to do the wrestling business run it for him and just be the, the ultimate boss, it would have made good. But Jim Hurd was not a wrestling guy. He wasn't very good at the wrestling business. And uh, this match, I mean, uh, The Undertaker, backs, he's been known to run backstage uh, he's, you know, he is the guy that everybody has to go through, and it's his backstage area. Even back in '97, is is he the one running things back there, or is it is it somebody else that all of the wrestlers kind of know is the is the unofficial boss backstage amongst all the wrestlers? Who, Jim? No, no, no. I'm talking Undertaker. I'm talking Undertaker in '97 yeah. running. He he runs he runs it backstage, right? I mean, he he's he is the. He is the you know clubhouse leader, I guess. If, if you well, if you say, well, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. See, everybody else <clears throat> at this particular time was leaving, going here, there, and WCW was running so strong. I mean, there was a, the only mainstays they had in the company for their main event guys was Undertaker and Shawn. Yeah, you know, and that was it. And for years, Undertaker carried this company because he was the main draw. I mean, Undertaker was the main draw in the company. So I don't know if he ran stuff backstage. Listen, Taker was still one of the boys, you know. So they always had their agents and bookers and everybody else that ran the show. And you see the lights go out here. Uh, that means uh, this is just a few months in October is when Kane debuted in the Hell in the Cell match against Shawn Michaels. So you're seeing uh, you're, you see the lights go out and the red lights come on. So Kane has kind of been torturing the Undertaker here over the past few months, Undertaker refusing to fight his little brother, 
And so Kane keeps coming out and finding ways to get involved. And there's Paul Bear, too, with the uh, red hair that he, he he doesn't dye the hair black anymore and looking a little uh, bigger than, than when he was with Undertaker as Paul Bear. It's amazing that we just saw on Raw this past Monday that Kane and Braun Strowman go to a no contest, and we are going to see Kane in a triple threat match in the main event of the 2018 Royal Rumble. And here he is two months into his debut as Kane in 1997. That's Over crazy. 20 years later, he is main eventing a pay-per-view there. It's, it's Glenn Jacobs while also running for office in the state of Tennessee. Well, what does that tell you, though? <laughs> that, tell you, that tells you that the new product is not getting over like the way you should in the old school. Do you think it's so much that, or is it the case that Kane's this monster, that the character will always get over and always be a monster, and you can put him... It, it, I think it also shows, too, to the loyalty that Glenn Jacobs has had to the company over the last 25 years as you know, sticking with it through being Isaac Yankum, being the fake Diesel, and then getting the Kane character, and then... God, I mean, staying in shape too. I mean, he's fifty. Yeah, he's Joe, he's fifty years old right now, and he's. We were talking about Sergeant Slaughter being forty nine yeah. and forty pounds overweight. Kane's about to main event a pay per view, or be in the world. I guess, I guess not main event in the Royal Rumble. The Royal Rumble is the main event, but he's going to be in the title match at, at the Royal Rumble in two thousand eighteen at the age of fifty. Well, you know, in today's business, your longevity is a little longer because your work schedule is not as strenuous as it was was back then, right? Uh, the, the flames coming out of the uh, turnbuckle. Have you? Did you ever? Were you ever in the ring when those flames went off? No. no so you, nobody is really, except for Kane and Taker. Right. Know. I'm saying. You know, there's been times where I mean, in the arena, that is one of the hottest things. I mean, you could yeah, be sitting yeah. up in the upper deck, and I just I wanted to know how hot it was inside yeah, it, the it, ring. It got, it got a little warm. <laughs> but you could feel it when you went down right away after it. You know. Yeah. But you know, people got to understand. You know, Kane, yes, is is going to be in the main event, but. What it does show you, too, is that the, the money they wasted in guys like the Ascension and all these other guys who are going to be the top heel guys could not carry the load. Listen, Kane, they almost ruined Kane with that corporate Kane crap. For him to be corporate Kane and you take away the mystique, listen, it's like a clock, man. If it's running fine and working perfect, it's not broke, you don't fix it. They shouldn't have ever changed Kane. They shouldn't have changed take her into the biker guy. They should have left it well enough in the loan and it would have drawn the same thing years later like it did. Well, that's, you know, we can get into this in a future Undertaker episode, but I, I do think that was part of the time when he wanted to do something different. They were also going away from all of the, the goofy characters, too. That, you know, they were going away from, okay, you, you can't be a dead man walking anymore. Now you're going to be... You know, you're you're gonna go and you're gonna get to be this this biker guy. And well, it, yeah, bro. But you know, here's yeah. the other thing too, Joe, is that with Joe Public out there doesn't know, is that when you do something like that, now you just cut your throat on all the other Undertaker memorabilia. So that's why they went back to the Undertaker because monetarily, you sell when you sell hundreds of million dollars worth of merchandise a year, you have to go back to your bread and butter as a company. And now, there's a publicly traded company today. You have to do that. Back then, it wasn't a publicly traded company, right? Yep. When it became a publicly traded company, all of the shareholders care about is the bottom dollar on what the company's worth. So you have to bring revenue into the company. Yeah. At the end of this match, by the way, we were talking about Kane coming out there. Uh, Kane shows up with Paul. 
Jarrett told Kane to destroy The Undertaker, so Kane chokeslammed Jeff Jarrett. That allowed Jarrett to get the win. Uh, then Kane, uh, by the way, it says here, uh, tell me Kane had lifts in his shoes so he could look as tall as the, uh, as the under, or made out to be taller than The Undertaker. I don't know, bro. They're both tall guys. Maybe back then he might have, but mm -hmm. they're both tall guys. They're both like 6'8", so it doesn't, you know. 6'8", 6'7", what's the difference? By the way, uh, here, here you go. Dave Meltzer comments, uh, you were talking about the uh, the ring attire. Here, here's something you might agree with with Dave Meltzer. He calls it the Mayan Indian outfit. Yeah, bro, he does. <laughs> it looks like, a, it looks like he, he grabbed somebody's teepee in the Appalachian Mountains. So you think he got, got with Tatanka? Yeah. You think he got with Tatanka to get his uh, ring gear for you know, this run? He's missing Tatanka's headdress. He should have put that headdress on with all the feathers. And then he would have been – Jeff Jarrett could have been the, the Indian from Tennessee. This, of course, uh, is still – we're still months away. It was a slow burn. I mean, you got to think, Kane debuts in August, and the two don't get in the ring with each other until WrestleMania in March in 2000, uh, 2004 – or uh, I guess WrestleMania 14. Yeah. So man, it was a slow, slow build to get to that you, match. Back when you could build things. Look, there's – Shaquille O'Neal in the audience. That's right? Mark Henry. Oh, that's Mark Henry. I look like Shaquille O'Neal from Robinson. No, that's Mark Henry right before he's maybe about I'm, maybe to I'm debut. Maybe I'm hungry. Jesus no, bro. When it, when it went in, when it went in, from, <laughs> it was a far away view, man. No, this is right around the time. I didn't when, recognize Mark Henry without the dreadlocks either. Uh, you're uh, Mark Henry, a, this uh, is a world young Mark Henry. Yeah, Mark this is 1997. Olympics. This is fresh off the 96 Olympics when he was the world's strongest man. I, I, I got to imagine, I mean, we're, I got to imagine we'll definitely talk about Mark Henry, but any lifting stories with Mark Henry being in the weight room with him? Oh. I mean, did he did he know of your history, you and Hawk's history lifting, and did he come to you guys when, when he came into the business? Yeah, yeah Mark, Mark knew of us right away. Listen, Mark... Listen, there's heavy lifting like Hawk and I did, and then there's Mark Henry lifting. Mark Henry was just not a natural human being, you know. I mean, Mark was an Olympic-caliber lifter that you don't even try to compare yourself to him. I mean, what, Hawk, what I did, more myself than Hawk, because Hawk wasn't really a heavy lifter, but all the lifting that I did heavy in the gym and Warlord and that, is comparable to some of the lifts probably Mark Henry did. You got a number on Mark Henry? You got a phone number on him? I could get a hold of Mark Henry. Because I, 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 I just, I just Googled Mark Henry to find out how old he would have been there. Yep. And he's actually going to be coming to St. Louis. He's going to be in St. Louis next Friday on December 22nd. So uh, I, say we, uh, I say we get with Mark and we, uh, we chat him up a bit next, uh, next week. How's can, that sound? I, I can get his number. I, his I, number. I would imagine, yeah, I would imagine it wouldn't be that difficult to do. Yeah, but no, man. this well, is this is what's called producing while on the air. Yes, this well, is yeah. we're not going to pause this because we're doing a watch along. If we weren't doing the watch along, I probably would have hit pause on this and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's figure this out." But no, we're doing the watch along. You're seeing the Rocky Maya Via with the pineapple cut on the hair. Oh my getting God. the <laughs> look at that hair, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but what we're about to see here is really amazing. In December of 1997, we are seeing Rocky Maivia against Stone Cold Steve Austin. They don't face they they main event WrestleMania 15 in March of 1999, but here in December of 1997, they're about to face off for the Intercontinental Title. You just knew that Rock was going to be something special in the entertainment business. He just had. Unwavering charisma. Uh, yeah, then again, you know, 
Look at the lineage he has from Peter Maivia to the Samoan thing with Rocky Johnson and everything else. You know, the guy's a second, third generation wrestler, you know? So, yeah, he, we already saw – we haven't actually seen the Nation of Domination yet. You guys, had a, uh, you guys had a feud with them earlier in the year, so you had actually been in the ring – with the uh, with the pineapple top, Rocky Maivia, oh, yeah. uh, leading Chicago up to uh, this, yeah, yeah. So uh, then Austin, at this time, you had done a lot of work with Austin as well yeah, over right. in the WCW days, this, and that's another one. You know, we talk about. All, I love this gimmick. I love Stone Cold's gimmick. He, he, you know, what got Stone Cold over is that he was exactly the way probably that three quarters of the people watching wrestling at home or in the arena mm-hmm. was like. He hate your, your boss, he, drink beer, hate your cuss. boss, give him, the, give him the bird, beat the hell out of him if you had a chance to, and have a Miller or a Budweiser afterwards to celebrate. Yeah, that was that was who he was at the time, going running around, giving that to everybody, and there they there you see you guys in the uh, in it, fighting off uh, fighting off the Nation of Domination, so he can give D'Lo Brown the uh, the Stone Cold Stunner, and there's you and Hawk coming to his aid at the uh, fighting the yeah, man, uh, the Nation of Domination. Like, we respect a guy like Steve Austin. How could you not? Anybody that tells the establishment to go. And there you see, God, Rod Simmons just got busted. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> supposed to happen there. <laughs> so, yeah, you you have a guy like Stone Cold. We, you know, we were just talking about how much they screwed up mean Mark Callis, not knowing the talent they had there. They also had stunning Steve uh, then, too. And they they had no idea what they were doing with that. Yeah, another another top talent in this, this business. You know now look look how popular Stone Cold became. Right, it, it still is. Stone Cold, listen, Stone Cold could go down now, and his music play and have the loudest reaction on Raw today. Oh yeah. Same with I mean, if you you hear the do you smell what the rock is cooking? I, that's I, these yeah. guys are going. I mean, this is why you know I, I asked you earlier Mount Rushmore of the the women that you dealt with that you that you worked with when we saw Sable on the show. You hear the conversation every now and then of the Mount Rushmore of wrestlers, and it's it's damn near impossible because there's a, there's no way to really get it down to four. There's no way it's to hard. look at it and go, who were the best four of all time? Because you look at it from the wrestling standpoint. You look at it from the mic work. You look at it from what they do for the company. Because, heck, we just, you know, we just saw The Undertaker, and now we're seeing The Rock, and we're seeing Stone Cold. And you're looking at that, and you're wondering, like, how, okay, you know, those are three of the top guys ever. So what, are you going to leave off Flair? Are you going to leave off Hogan? Yeah. You, 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 there's you, just, it's you, you so can't. impossible to do that. You can't, man. Look here. This was the beginning of knowing that Rock was going to be a star. Here you got the whole nation of domination. Who gets the mic first and only talks? Rock. When Farouk is your elder and Ron Simmons is phenomenal on the mic. You know what I mean? The Rock is supposed to be Ron Simmons' guy. Mm -hmm. But you can tell this is where the Rock is starting to step out a little bit. And, uh, you know, you, you just knew he was going to be a great talent. They, you know, it, we do end up seeing Ron Simmons or Farouk and end up having a dominant tag team with JBL as the uh, the APA yeah. in the future. But right here, it almost does seem like they are starting to fade out Farouk a bit. Like they're saying, okay, you know what, we're going to put you in the stable and you're going to push this new young kid 
into into stardom, but he ends up having a decent sized run after that. But it does it does yeah. seem like they're trying to push Bro, him out. Do you know how hot that gimmick would be today? The nation of domination. It would. I mean, with what's going on in today's right. society with Black Lives Matter? It would be monstrous, monstrous. But I think they faded it out back then because the way the wrestling was going and the darkness it was going to, they were getting a lot of heat from people in the company and everything else that they had to fade out the black the Farouk thing. And they they have the they have the IC belt on on him as uh, on Rock or Rocky Maivia right now. So they they have this you know they they're giving him this push. They're wanting to see how how it's going to work. And we're about to see Stone Cold Steve Austin come down. And we were talking earlier about riding the motorcycles down to the ring. And here you see Stone Cold Steve Austin driving a pickup truck down to the ring and uh, coming all the way down. Easier to drive. Uh, Okay. How, how hard do you think it is to drive this down there? Having fans hitting the, hitting it, it, even you're just going a straight line, right? Well, yeah, bro. This it's, is going to be easier a, than riding a motorcycle. It's, it's easier to drive. And then you got someone like Stone Cold who did the exact perfect thing, right? He ran on top of the car and runs in. It's, it's perfect, man. And we're, we're about to see this go to uh, – um, yeah. so he came to the ring in his truck, got far – but Meltzer writes, got the best reaction of anyone on the show. Sure he did. And as soon as he gets into the ring, the entire nation of domination – comes in and uh, and attacks him. So even before the match starts, you get Ron Simmons, D'Lo Brown, and at the time known as Kama Mustafa in there. We're actually going to be seeing Kama Mustafa coming up in two weeks. Uh, we want to plug your your next upcoming events that you will yeah, be at man. on hey, December 26th. All back to the great mm-hmm. state of Illinois and we're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin, yeah. well, Belleville, Illinois. You're, no, no, no. I that's where I'm from. I'm from Belleville. That's an hour away from here. Yeah. You're no. You're going like five hours. You're going to Belvedere. You're going to Belvedere, oh, Illinois. Belvedere. Yes, up in Chicago, Maybe that's up where in I the Chicago up. area. Yeah, you're yeah. going up to Belvedere, just outside a suburb. I don't know where I, I got Belleville at. <laughs> a west suburb. You're right. It is Belvedere. I remember yeah. typing that in. Belvedere, Illinois, a west suburb of Chicago. So if you are up there. You'll be up there the day after Christmas on the 26th, and then just a short, I want to say it's about an hour and a half drive north up to Madison, Wisconsin. You will be up there um, on December 27th. It's going to be awesome to get back in Wisconsin, man. I've not seen the great fans of Wisconsin, especially the Madison area for a long time. Yeah, you'll be up there. It's Winter Warfare Tour 2017. Great college town, man. University of Wisconsin. So if awesome. you look up on uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash powerhouse WI. Powerhouse WI is where you could find your info from that. As it says here, the Ho-Ho-Ho train comes to Madison. There you go. That is uh, So you will have Charles right there as the Godfather, other people that will be in attendance, Sabu, Sandman, Hornswoggle, Adam Rose will be there on the 27th. Uh, pretty much the exact same cast on the 26th in Belvedere, Illinois, at the Apollo Theater in Belvedere, and then at Turner Hall in Madison, Wisconsin. Awesome. I cannot is, wait, man. It's going to be two good days. Yeah, it's where you could go there. So this match, you see a lot of the Nation of Domination getting involved with uh, with this. D'Lo Brown is completely laid out on top. He We missed it as we were given the plug for your event, but he takes the uh, he takes the body drop onto the uh, – he takes the stunner on the roof of the truck after being backdropped onto the windshield of that. 
Can you gimmick a windshield on a truck? Well, I'm sure you can, man. You could get that uh, entertainment glass you put in there. You know what I mean? The fake glass. Right. Is really probably, it's just like sugar is what it is. Mm-hmm. Rock candy. Um, you do that sometimes. But I, I don't think that he, because, you know, a regular windshield is only going to. We see it here again. It's got a prism. See, that's a real windshield. Because it, it'll prism and shatter like that, but it won't come apart. Usually. You think it was worth it for the probably $50,000 they put into that truck 40000 20 years ago, maybe, for, for that little... Uh... Sure, bro, yeah, sure. You know okay. what? Look how over Stone Cold right. it is. You know what I mean? He, he's probably sold one month through the merchandise that paid for that truck. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, you know, it's no different than when Brock Lesnar tore apart that Cadillac mm-hmm. and threw that door about 150 feet. Oh, God, like, yeah. Like it, was a, like it was a Frisbee. You know, and Cadillac got, you know, look, what is it, Chevy or GMC, this truck that he drove down? Whatever the make of the truck is, got a huge plug. It probably got donated to the company for free. So this match doesn't go very long. We're about to see the end of it. And I know we've, we've talked a lot about Meltzer here, and I'm looking forward to reading more things in the future on, uh, on things that Meltzer writes, given how you've uh, – how we've started off with a uh, with a bang here on this, but I'll read what he ends up. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll read how he ends up finishing this because right now we it's not the people's elbow yet. He's going. Uh, Rock comes in and he just gives a regular elbow. This move that he just did gets over and becomes a devastating finisher to a match. When he hits the hill and he ends up hitting the rock bottom, followed by that elbow. Is, I mean, you see this as a guy that uses the doomsday device, throwing a guy off your shoulders and flipping him in the air, that The Rock was able to get pins and win championships by hitting a guy in the chest with a running elbow. Yeah, hey, man. You know, it's uh, all that makes it look as his opponents are weaker than ours. <laughs> you, you know, hey, listen, he did the rock bottom first, which set up the elbow. The elbow was just the icing on the cake. The rock bottom really did the damage. It's no different when we, Hawk and I, used to do the doomsday. 90% of the time, I would throw a guy in and give him a power slam, then signal up. You know what I mean? Right. And so I would set the guy and weaken him up with the blow. With the do- with that. It's just that the doomsday is probably, if not the number one, one of the most devastating-looking finishes in the wrestling business history. And here he goes with the you second know? one as he just tosses the, uh, tosses the elbow guard just behind him. Nowadays, that's something that you catch that in the crowd, and you're probably able to eBay that off for uh, quite a quite a lot of money. Oh yeah, definitely. So these two again end up. I mean, this is their first match. There's there's no way that here in December of '97, Vince has any idea that these two are going to main event a WrestleMania for him, right? No, I mean, we know Vince no. thinks ahead, but there's no way he thinks that far ahead. But after watching a match like this, you got to wonder. If he's looking at that and thinking, well, you know what? Like, okay, I got something here. These two have these two have a little chemistry in the ring. Well, I'd say what all the guys do it in back. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're watching this match, you're looking at you say, hey, you know exactly what's going on. And we just missed it here. Nation of Domination comes back and distracts him again. The Stone Cold turns around and hits the stunner on the referee, thinking that it's uh, the Rock and goes to pin him before realizing it's not. Rock pulls out brass knuckles from his trunks. And ends up getting stopped. Stone Cold hits the stunner on him. And now you have to wait for the second referee. 
but you see in the background, the first Again, one is already calling for the count. bell. You have to get around a pickup truck. Come on. Hey, man, move the truck. <laughs> it was Jimmy Corderas. He couldn't get down to the ring very quick. You think uh, they don't show it, but do you think he jumps on the bed of the truck and runs over the top of the truck, or do you think he runs down to the side of the truck? I think there's room down the side. There's probably room on each side. So the match ends up being a uh, DQ. They end up saying that he, that because Stone Cold hit the referee with the stunner, that they DQ it. So Stone Cold thinks that he has won, or it says here that he pinned him to retain the IC title uh, on this. But I'm, you see in the background, the referee was calling for the she bell shot in the background. Right. See, Stone Cold was smart. You know, nobody told him to go on the top of the truck, right? Nobody told him to do this and pose. I mean, Stone Cold, he, you got to take advantage of those opportunities when you know that the spotlight's right there. Dave Meltzer writes, you can't expect Austin to have the kind of matches that he had in the past due to his injuries. But given his limitations, that was pretty entertaining. No, it was a good match, man. Stone Cold would go on to main event on, uh, the, for the WWF your, for the next yes, how many years? Bro, it's all about your gimmick being over. You know, and we're going to find out here, and you're going to hear me get a little bit irritated. Because back now, now I'm talking. Now I want to reiterate: back in this time frame, nobody in the back liked this Meltzer report. The Observer. Mm-hmm. If we would all see Meltzer personally in the, in the show, we all would have took Terrence knocking them out and picking them up. So, what changed with your relationship with him over the years to where you now said that you you respect what well, he does now? Because when Vince said, "Hey, the wrestling business is entertainment," and we knew he had to have an inside connection with every office because he was picking things on the spot. Because in the beginning when he did this, he would try to guess, and he was always wrong most of the time on what the finish was going to be, right? Even though he tried to guess it to get it right. And then, you know, it's like anything else, man. Once you've been around for a while and the new group of fans come in, they think, see, the the new fans don't know that the old fans didn't really give a crap what Meltzer said. But the new fans coming up, when you go up with the Wrestling Observer and Meltzer being the guy – then you know that you start giving credibility, right? I mean, it's 97. I'm trying to think when we got internet in my house for the first time. And, I mean, I, I think it would have been probably around 98 when you're getting AOL, when you're getting those yeah. free discs that you're putting in and getting three, six hours at a time. Bro, I'm telling you, it was years before people even gave a crap of what he said. I mean, for the most part now, you're getting, you're, you know, he's mailing these out. That yeah, you're, you're, I know. He's sending these out each and every week. So I remember the guys in the locker room would say, hey, man, did you get the cheat sheet? And, you know, we all would laugh on some of the reports and all the stuff that would happen. So who was getting, like, who backstage would have gotten it back then? Who would have been making the calls back then to him to give him some of the dirt? I, I don't know, man. Like, someone like Cornette would be walking around with one or someone you wouldn't think would have a cheat sheet would be walking around on one. It was always the Meltzer Wrestling Observer, Meltzer's report. Cornette get pretty worked up about some of the reports that he would have well, in Cornette there. Cornette got worked up with everything, so I mean, right? That's what I was saying. So oh, he yeah, he would yeah, have yeah. read this a few weeks later, and yeah, he probably yeah. would have been really really pissed off yeah, about it. Yeah. See, here's the problem though: Meltzer back then was given his opinion about matches, not knowing. Okay, even our match with DX, not knowing how hard it is. You're basically wrestling two green guys trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit mm-hmm. and trying to make it work good and then you're doing the best you can and for someone to say oh man it was a match as a dud you know that's why half the guys wanted to kill him because he doesn't realize what we go through day in and day out working freaking 50,000 matches you know what I mean 
mm-hmm. and trying to get the business straight. Then when you get some guy who's never set foot in the ring telling you, oh, geez, the match was a dud, you take offense to it because you work your butt off, man. Like I said, back then, you're on the road 250, 300 days a year. We are, we're seeing here the lead-up to the main event, the, uh, the final match on the card. It's Ken Shamrock versus Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels has the belt here, and we're seeing the lead-up to it all around whether or not Shawn Michaels can take the ankle lock from Ken Shamrock. But they're back there. You know, they're DX. They're playing their little shenanigans uh, backstage, not really respecting anybody. Shawn Michaels also has, he has the WWF title. He also has the European title. At the time, too. So he is uh, he has both of those. And this is, again, right after, as we were saying, right after the Montreal Screwjob. So Sean is seen by a lot of people as a heel, but there still is that, that you know, those people that think that DX is cool. They're doing things that nobody else is doing. So, you know, it's it, it really is mixed. And they're trying to put a little sympathy on Jim the Anvil Neidhart, who was rejected as being a member of 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 DX and Jim the Anvil Neidhart still stuck around after Bret Hart left. So he he stuck around for a little bit, but I I don't think he he stuck stays too much longer after that because the Anvil by himself kind of you know defeats not re- the purpose of the Hart Foundation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You know, Anvil wasn't the uh, wasn't a, a, a performer like Bret. Anvil was the muscle of Bret. You know, and that's why how that worked out well. And he also had his, his demons as well. Yeah, I mean, Anvil, I think, I don't know if that was a particular timing or not, but I remember backstage at the time, I don't know if he got pissed off at something and threw a couple monitors backstage and everything else. He left for a bit. I mean, he was gone for a while. Jim Cornette backstage, I don't think we mentioned it the first time he was doing an interview, but Jim Cornette backstage in a tuxedo doing that's interviews funny. on a, on a uh, in your house in December. That's crazy. I didn't even know they made a tuxedo and fit Jim He's. I, I remember back here with Kenny Shamrock, man. <laughs> Kenny Shamrock first coming into WWF. It was a very interesting experience. This is why I wanted to get your thoughts earlier on UFC, because Ken Shamrock is coming over from the UFC. I mean, back then, the UFC is in its early stages. It is not under the ownership that it was when it completely just blew up and became as mainstream as it was. But Ken Shamrock comes over and, you know, decides that he's going to jump into the WWF or Vince makes a makes a pitch to him and gets him over to the WWF. And you have this UFC guy coming now in a, you know, coming to the W, you know, coming into a professional wrestling ring. So did you know of Ken Shamrock before he came to the WWF, or were you kind of introduced to him as, hey, this is this guy's an MMA and ultimate fighter? No, nah, man. I knew a lot of guys that fought in ultimate fighting back then, back in uh, Pancreas and different companies over in Japan. And I knew Dan Severin real well, who was also fighting back then at the time, too, who was a great, you know, collegiate wrestler from the University of Michigan. But, you know... And when Kenny Shamrock came over, everybody knew the Shamrock name. His brother, Frank Shamrock, who was mm-hmm. a great fighter. Then you had Kenny Shamrock, who was the champion at the time. You know, they had a great gym in, uh, I think it was San Diego, called the Lion's Den, where they trained guys, you know. And uh, Kenny, it was, well, he was, one, he was a, if not the top dog at this time, probably top two in the country when he made the transition over to WWF, right? But a lot of guys who fight like this and a lot of guys who do this kind of stuff and come over from amateur wrestling from 
being a gold medalist or being a champion in UFC have a hard time adjusting to the style of pro wrestling. I think Kenny adapted to it very well. You know, maybe the thing that Kenny was lacked a little bit was on the interview end of it, but in the ring, Kenny, you knew Kenny was going to be something special. And he's in there with a great professional. I mean, Sean, right. Sean was top dog here. Sean could wrestle anybody. You know, he worked along with guys like, you know, Flair and been taught by the best. And Sean was top dog of the company at this time. Shamrock ends up going back and, I, I, you know, knowing that how Shamrock makes the rounds, I have no doubt that we'll talk to Ken at, at some point. But he ends up going back to UFC, at, or back to MMA, I should say, uh, fighting with Bellator, and as he did a few years ago. How hard is it to go from, you know, the punches that you see on in a WWF ring to then having to transition back and forth the way that Ken Shamrock would have? I think it's easier to go back to shoot fighting than it is to come in the wrestling from mm-hmm. shoot fighting. You know, because wrestling, it's you got to be one of the consummate actors. But it's how good you do your job in professional wrestling, you know. That's why nobody ever questioned anything that Hawk and right. I ever did because we were murdering people. I'm I'm really uh, surprised that they are showing the cameras. They have the backstage cameras making this feel like a big fight moment, walking them through into Gorilla. And well, it is, man. <laughs> Kenny was a champ in yeah. ultimate fighting. He was a top guy. So to have Sean, who's a top of wrestling, fight the champ of the top guy in ultimate fighting is a big deal, you know. So, yeah. It, it, Kenny I, would travel with Hawk and I back then. What was uh, what were some stories from that? What was that like uh, having well, him in I'll the – I'll never forget the funniest story. Kenny Shamrock was with us, and I think we were in Philadelphia, and we were stopping somewhere like to eat at a Denny's or something after the show. And we go in there, and there's Brian Pillman face down in his spaghetti. And Brian Stillman, of course, took some somas. So he was already there before oh, you guys got there, just by like, himself. Shaking like crazy. There was a table full of people, fans that gave him a ride because Brian couldn't drive. But Brian was shaking and everything. Kenny Shamrock sits down and he goes, should we call a doctor? Is he going to be all right? And we said, nah, Brian will be fine in 10 minutes. And what you know, in 10 minutes, boom, he woke up and he was fine. Until 20 minutes after that again, he was shaking and everything else again, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was the strangest thing. But to see a guy, what was cool about it, is to see a guy come from a shoot, like a thing like pro or, uh, you know, ultimate fighting, come into pro wrestling and have to deal with some of the crap that we had to deal with on a daily basis, you know? So he was, you know, he was brought in right away and he was kind of accepted by you guys. Oh, yeah, okay. man. Listen, not only accepted for what he did in ultimate fighting, because that wasn't the big thing. Listen, there's a lot of tough wrestlers. I mean, SAG's not getting Shamrock out, right? Sags did. Sags handled him like a baby. Mm-hmm. But it's all in a situational thing. A lot of guys are great fighters in that controlled area, which is way different than being a street fighter. I can tell you that from first-hand experience. You know, so it's, it's a different beast. But there's a common respect there. And not only that, look at Kenny's physique. Oh, yeah. He that's look, one thing I wanted like to mention. Million, looks like a million dollars. Yeah. The guy was a uh, you know, 220-pounder, benching 500 pounds. Yeah, when Twice he body weight, you know, so. when he takes off that robe, uh, he is uh, he is chiseled from stone. Yeah, yeah, man, he's hard as rock. And and I was in the gym, and I've seen Kenny do five hundred in the gym, you know. So I mean, his credentials speak for himself. He uh, Meltzer says here that it looks like Shawn Michaels is about ten to fifteen pounds heavier over the past two weeks. So from the time of the Montreal screw job till now, 
he thinks he put on about 10 to uh, 10 to 15 pounds. Well, I'm sure he probably had to get in the ring with Shamrock. I mean, you know. You see him, uh, and he was also, what is that? Is he wearing his wedding ring around his, uh, around his neck too? Nah, bro, I don't even know. <laughs> I didn't pay that much attention to what he's got around his neck. We, there, the rumors are out there that Conor McGregor possibly will be coming over. We've, you know, we've definitely heard the rumors of Ronda Rousey possibly making her way into a WWE ring. Down the training center. You have? Yeah. That would be. It, it wouldn't you know? Wouldn't surprise I think anybody if she ended up Listen, on WWE TV. The women have the best segments on TV now. When you. The thing with Paige and her two girls going on there, I'm not too f- – what's the new – the girl from NXT, the dark girl that has all – it looks like Paige. Ruby Rose? Yeah, I'm not too a fan of those She's girls. on SmackDown, yeah. Yeah, the, because they're so inexperienced yet. Right. You can tell probably that's where they're going to go over in the future is that faction is going to go against Paige's faction. You can tell where it's going because Paige and that girl look very similar – you know, if somebody would like to point out the difference and how I could tell the difference between Mandy Rose and Liv Morgan, I would appreciate that. Uh, at <laughs> Joe Roderick on Twitter, because right now they're both just really smoking hot blondes that look exactly alike to me. Bro, hey, that might be your tag team in the future for women. They they could you do know? the uh, they could do the twin magic if they wanted to, yeah, like uh, like the Bella Twins. I mean, yeah, they both they looking ladies, you know. I mean, right? Let's and they're great shape. You could tell they're former <laughs> bodybuilders. How would a guy like Conor McGregor, you think, be – how would he be accepted in the WWE today? Well, how would that go over with how – Listen, I think the guy is a great entertainer. You got to look at it this way. Is he going to want to risk his reputation on doing something that's entertainment like this? He just made $100 million on a fight, which was pure entertainment the whole way the way it was. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we got, you know, I don't, I don't know, man. It'd be good, but why would you do it? What do you, what do you get to prove? If you made a hundred mil, you put fifty mil in the bank. You're a fifty million dollar guy, right? Why would you go near anything you don't have to do anymore and take the chance of someone hurting you or doing something stupid in the ring? But then again, in wrestling, you know, you pretty much control everything that happens in the ring anyway. You know what you're going to do, what you were not going to do. Yeah, I, you know, it just. Something to do. It's that extra. It's that constant paycheck. You stay in there for a little longer, and you, you know, you can make yourself some money. And hey, heck, you know what? The, you're never going to make the money you've been able to order before, right? No. You don't think he'd be able to step back in a ring with a, you know, I, I, you know, you're not going to step in the ring ever again with Floyd Mayweather. But I think the only thing that he could do that would make money in WWE is he made a couple comments about Brock Lesnar at one time. And Brock Lesnar would manhandle him like he was a redheaded step. He would, but you know what? It's the WWE, so they would make it seem like Connor has a a fighting chance. A fighting and chance. you know how many you you know how many people would order the network, would pay that ten dollars oh, yeah. to just to see it, to see sure. uh, even even knowing that it's in the WWE, knowing that to watch they Brock Lesnar face Connor McGregor probably would have better ratings than any of their pay per views. By the way, here's here's Liv Morgan and uh, Mandy Rose side by side. Take a look at that and try to tell tell me the difference between the two of them. I mean, they're uh, twins, right? Yeah, well, that's Mandy Rose on the right, right? I think so. Yeah, it is. I think yeah, so. She's, yeah, she's better. She's got a better figure as far as an athletic-looking girl. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That I think. 
I think, listen, they both look great. I mean, they're both good at upcoming talents. Uh, I'm not too sure yet on the other. What's the other girl's name that's with uh, with Rose and Paige? What's the other girl's name? Uh, with Rose the, and the country girl. Oh no, you're, that's uh, that's on. Um, you're you're talking about that's on SmackDown. She is with yeah Ruby Rose. Oh yeah, you're right, you're right. It's <clears throat> yeah, Ruby Rose. Oh, it's yeah. Liv Morgan and. I have to uh, – the, the UFC girl. It's Sarah something. Oh, yeah. you're talking – that one. Um, Sonya. Sonya yeah. um, is, is no, the one that's on Raw. Good. She yeah. does good and moves really good, you know. But I don't know about the other faction. Sonya Deville. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about the other faction, though. I don't know. Don't the know. other faction, Ruby Rose, that's Liv Morgan. And they are uh, – that's the uh, – by the way, there is a pay-per-view this weekend, uh, should mention. That's uh, the pay-per-view, the Clash of Champions which you've been on plenty Clash of Champions cards oh boy. in uh, in your day. That is this uh, that's this Sunday on the uh, on the network. But you're talking about yeah. I'm, I'm scrolling through here to find the uh, find the name of who it is because yeah, it's eating at me too over who it's uh, what the name well, of it there's is. There's been about 15 <coughs> different divas that have come in or girl wrestlers that have come in in the last month. I can't keep track of. You them. think they should do a uh, diva ba- uh, Royal Rumble? Even if it's 15 or 20 women, you think they should have a uh, yeah. give them their own Royal because Rumble this if January? You, if you looked at the rundown <laughs> last week, it was a great reaction, you know, mm-hmm. when they had the, all the girls fighting in there together. Yeah. I, I thought it was a great reaction to the fans. The fans bought it, looked good. I'll tell you what, man. Shawn Michaels is a consummate professional. He's having a really good match here with Shamrock, by the way. Oh yeah, this match. I, the, you know, this is when Shamrock is getting that push right away. Meltzer gives this match three stars, and he does point out that Shamrock looks uh, a bit robotic in spots at times. But you got to realize this is the guy that's you know this is one of his first matches. You didn't have NXT to have him developed in, and he really didn't have much of I guess a whole lot of training time outside of that. Do you even need to give a guy like this much training? When he's been in the octagon as long as he, you're it, better off not giving him training because you want him to be in his octagon type form. Now look at all the guys that fight in the octagon of UFC. Do not tell me they're not robotic. They're all standing there like this, mm-hmm. going around like a robot until they do their move. And it's the the UFC is a very much reactionary move. It's you go on your opponent's first move, yeah. and you counter. It's a counter. It's a counter sport. You know. Uh, Sarah Logan. It was. It's Liv Morgan and Sarah Logan are the uh, are the two other girls that are with the uh, that are with Ruby Rose on SmackDown. Yeah. I knew I had, I knew I was going to find. I knew it was Sarah something uh, for that. But going here, this match does go. You know, this match goes a while too. Eighteen minutes. It's a long and time. who? I mean, is is a guy like Shamrock going in those those quick bouts or those quick rounds in UFC? It, I mean, is it going to take a lot of? T- would it have taken him a lot of time to get? used to or get you know in ring shape for this well, or I, how? Th- I think he's in ring shape bro the thing when you're doing a big pay-per-view here at the wwf at the time you got to get in nervous energy shape okay you know what i mean it takes a lot of nervous energy when you you know you're coming down and if you're not experienced with it used to the crowd noise and the cheers and the booze and all this it it weighs on you because hey you're live man there's no do-overs on a pay-per-view you either get it right or you screw up, and you cannot redo it again. You know what I mean? It's not like you do a TV taping where you can cut and splice, and if some move didn't go right, you can say, hey, okay, cut it here. You guys go back and do it again, you know? 
so the, yeah, he you know he's got to be absolutely perfect, as you said, if he wants any more of those pushes in the future. And he's been in the company now for quite a few months. He would have debuted, I guess, his big first moment would have been at WrestleMania 13, in the uh, as he was the uh, enforcer or the referee of the uh, submission match between Stone Cold and Bret Hart. Uh, it was him that you know he decided that Stone Cold was bleeding too much and couldn't go anymore. That was kind of his introduction into the business and the way they got him into storyline so you're going on about nine months of him being in the business at this point and already main eventing so you could tell that from a young from an early standpoint that they had a lot of you know they they had a lot of plans for him and on top of that too you're if you watch it here right now the 18 minute mark per se right getting close to it he's still firing back and punching like it's the first couple minutes of the match you know so i mean kenny is an ultimate performer man he's do you think two years before this, Ken Shamrock thought it, it, he was fighting in UFC that he was going to get power slammed by a woman that he just like he just did with uh, China? No. no. You no, think no. it's he's in the ring with guys like Dan Severin or Tank Abbott that he's thinking, you know what, one of these days a woman's going to pick me up and power slam me? No, I'm sure it never crosses his mind. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of other things he thought he'd be doing with a woman other than that. <laughs> it, it is an interesting time for the WWF because you bring over this star from – UFC. You have an Olympic power lifter that we just saw yeah. with Mark Henry that he's coming over as well. And then on top of all that, you do have another guy in in the wings that's going to be coming up, an Olympic wrestler that's going to be debuting in less than a year from now with the company by the name of Kurt Angle. Yeah. So Vince is really going all over the map to find some of these guys it's you know he's not getting talent from WCW or he's not just finding other guys that are coming up they're starting to slowly have this developmental system where they're bringing in other talent and turning them into wrestlers well you almost have to man because everybody that's a top dog in WCW has already been through WWF Mm -hmm. so you got to try to go outside and do some things listen I give them all the credit in the world you know you got Kenny Shamrock you got Kurt Angle coming in you got World strongest man, Mark Henry, who's been all the powerlifting magazines. You know, it's 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 a great time for the wrestling business. I mean, listen, you always need competition. I still am a firm believer that there should be a WCW or an NWA at full stride with TV. And, uh, and someday you're going to see it again. Yeah. You need be. somebody that has money that's willing to uh, take the hits early on something gonna, like well, that. I hope, yeah, I hope Billy Corrigan, you know, you, well, you used to be, what, Smashing Pumpkins? Yeah. Yeah, is – it just bought the NWA name and is trying to do something there out of Chicago. So we'll see what happens, man. I, yeah, I, I, next year, I think you're going to see two or three companies come to bat. You know, unless you can't go in there and redo WWE because you don't want to try to redo WWE. It's its own machine. But there's plenty of room with the amount of wrestling fans out there that uh, – that was a terrible punch. That was a horrible punch. Didn't even freaking hit him. It was so it, it was so bad. It was so weak. Shamrock didn't even know if he should sell it. I, was, I don't know if Shamrock had his eyes open to know he should sell God, that. He even knew he threw it. Oh my, my God. God, that was terrible. Yeah, that was pretty weak. You ever meet? Have you met Billy Corgan before? No, I've never met Billy no? Man, but I heard he's a huge Road Warrior fan. Uh, I know a friend of mine, uh, Steve Church, was talking to him, and you know he, he's, he's 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 a heck of a guy from what I hear. A problem is, you know, he got screwed, blued, tattooed when he was in TNA. Yeah. So he probably doesn't know who he can trust. But, Billy, I'm telling you, if out there, if you're listening, Billy, I'm your guy if you want to try to get something going here, man, because 
you know, I'll be honest and truthful with you and help you run a good company. You know, there's also a couple other guys, you know, Shane Douglas and uh, Bill Townsend, who's working on a company called Revolution out of Las Vegas. And it's going to be at uh, one of the major casinos out in Las Vegas that they're waiting for now for a TV rights deal. And once that happens, you're going to see some really interesting things happen with that company, Revolution, which is going to be a good thing. I think they're going to have their own T- channel on DirecTV. Well, if, we, uh, if we're going to tag Billy Corgan and try to get him to, uh, to listen to this episode right now, because I can tell you what, if, um, if you, know, you told 12-year-old me that 32-year-old me had a chance at meeting Billy Corgan, <laughs> I'd, uh, yeah, I, I'd be freaking out a bit. Uh, hey, bro, uh, I, was a, I was a big fan <laughs> of his music too, bro, as well on the road, man. He, great, great, great group, great performers, you know, so. This match is still going on quite a uh, you know quite a while. We're seeing now. Uh, I, I would imagine we're getting to the end here soon of uh, of this one. But you, you do you know for I'm, I I got to say I am a little surprised that they had a guy like Ken Shamrock go this long in in the ring, being his first singles main event because well, it would have been in the summer he would have he would have been in the ring with you guys as the uh, the Calgary Stampede. Pay per view. It would. He was. Yeah, he was in that. He would have been in the uh, that with you guys, Gold Dust and uh, and Stone Cold. So this isn't his first run at main event status, yeah. main event in a pay per view, but it is his first singles run. Well, man, he's in there with a conductor. I mean, Sean is a great performer. Sean can make Ken Shamrock look better than Ken Shamrock can make himself look. You know what I mean? It's it's a lot like Ric Flair. Ric Flair could have a match with a chair and make that chair look phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, so Kenny's in there with a good ring professional, and Sean, Sean's like an orchestrator out there, man. He's he's a great young talent, you know. And uh, even here at ninety seven, in ninety seven, twenty years ago, you you think Sean still at this point was able to walk you through? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. But you you could tell he's got it. He but Sean, Sean was trained old school, so Sean knew how important it was for old school for the more experienced guy to teach a new guy coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and Sean was being a teacher here. I'm sure he's telling Kenny here, man, okay, slow down, slow down, slow down, drop down, let me get you down, and you'll fight back up and all this other stuff, you know, to try to paint the picture for the people in the proper way that the people deserve to get it painted. I'm glad they went long here because if they would have came out here and Sean would have beat them in two seconds, it wouldn't have meant nothing. You're, you're, yeah, you're saying it would have probably buried Shamrock and he wouldn't have been Shamrock able to get back on top. And people well, would have. People that went back saying, ah, that's bullshit. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know? from here, though, I mean, Ken Shamrock really doesn't have many big runs in, in the future. He's part of the corporation. He's, you know, he's teamed up with Vince McMahon yeah. as one of his, one of his henchmen yeah. in, in months to come, in the next year to come, but he never does quite reach that main event status bro, ever again like after the, this. But it's almost like the kiss of death, bro, when you get tied in with the boss because it's a no-win situation. You're never going to be as powerful or as more over as the boss. He wasn't a – I mean, he he was jacked. He's ripped for sure. But as far as Mike's skills, Shamrock really just didn't – never really had that. No, bro, listen, every, listen, very few guys got the total package. Mm-hmm. You know, look, Kenny, he's like a freaking – unbelievable. Yeah. He's like a good sh- – the fully full well, bread and still today there, his arms right? i mean his arms are it enormous looks today looks, yeah it's good man it looks good you know and he's still you know he's still in fighting shape i mean he just yeah. two years ago he is you know he's heck i walked in under the ring in a bellator fight against kimbo slice yeah you know here in st louis you know and kenny is a great friend i would do anything for him kenny's a good guy 
Right. It just, yeah, it just, you know, you didn't have the whole thing. And like you said, that's what it takes to kind of get to that, that main event status. Look, here, if he is, you will. here he is, right? You're, you're right. Early in the match, flying around, still doing good moves at the freaking 18-minute mark, which is incredible because Sean does not lay there and die for you. No. No, Sean, and the, you have the, and, you know, that's the move right there, the Huracurana that he does. That's not something that, you know, that's something he probably just learned in the last nine months that he's putting off in a in a main event of a pay-per-view because he's he's not doing that at a UFC octagon. Oh, no, bro, you're not going to do that at the UFC, do a Huracurana. <laughs> I heard God, I was, like, trying to teach my grandson when he's drop-kicking it. My, or James, and James was younger, took him to amateur wrestling, and he goes, Daddy, can I drop kick the guy? No, you can't drop kick in amateur wrestling. You got <laughs> you gotta keep everything on the ground, James. Better, uh, better drop kick. Uh, the one you do side, sideways drop kick or like a Finn Balor when he does the drop kick and lands right on his back? Uh, bro, I, I used to stand straight at the guy and jump straight up in his face and hit him with both feet and the chin. I don't like the Greg Gagne, almost like a it's like a twirl. You right. Know, it's like a cartwheel drop kick. It's like a cartwheel in the air where your hands really don't touch. I don't like those. Those kind of drop kicks are for the guys that really can't jump. Who had the best? Who has the best drop kick in wrestling history? You know who had a good drop kick? I will admit, Jimmy Brunzel. Okay. Had a great drop kick. And for high. for those that might not know who that is, it was one of the high flyers in the AWA and one of the killer bees. Um, with uh, Brian Blair for WWF. Uh, you also had Ricky Steamboat had a great drop kick. Um, to be quite honest with you, man, Hawk and I had decent drop kicks for big guys, but you got to understand, back then, very many big guys didn't throw drop kicks. Mm-hmm. You know, But we always hit guys like The Undertaker, who was 6'8", right underneath the chin. You know, for, I mean, we, and I was a 320-pound guy throwing a drop kick. You know, there's guys like, I mean, Andre used to throw a drop kick, believe it or not. Once in a while, so the giant Baba in Japan, two seven foot two guys. How many times? I mean, you were were you in the ring a lot with uh with Andre? No, man, we got Andre near closer where he had bad hips and he was drinking a lot yeah. at the end of his career. <clears throat> I figure that'll be you know that's something that the people want to hear an entire yeah, episode I, just on Andre. But well, I've always s- I, I've, I've been meaning to ask when you uh what your relationship was or how often you guys Andre. got to see him. Here comes the sweet chin music by uh by Sean. You see, now I thought that he was going to – I really thought there that Ken Shermock would have caught that into the ankle lock. We haven't seen the ankle lock yet, but we just saw the belly-to-belly, which sets you up for it. Yep. Triple H and China running for the DQ. How – I mean, how much do you think that Ken Shermock had to be taught how to put the ankle lock on in the WWE or the WWF compared to how he put it on in the UFC? The ankle lock goes on the same way. It's how much you want to torque on that's, it. That's what I was you kind of wanna, asking. Yes, is that. Torque. All those moves, even like the figure four, it's all on how the figure four can really hurt and dislocate mm-hmm. your knee. It all depends how bad you want to torque on it. And listen, we got to remember, your bread and butter and your money is, is with the guy you're in the ring with. If you hurt your main eventer in the ring, who are you going to wrestle? Right. You cannot hurt each other in there. So that's what – and that's what making and, the people believe – that, oh, crap, this really happened, is the sign of an excellent pro. And here you see the end come where Owen Hart runs in out of nowhere and attacks Shawn Michaels, throws him through the announce table, and is beating him up while Triple H and China are attending to Ken Shamrock on the other side of the ring and have no idea what is uh, what is going on. Owen Hart, who we haven't seen 
in uh, in quite some time. Comes in and uh, sets up the uh, the next feud for Shawn Michaels as retribution for what Shawn did to his brother in Montreal just a uh, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, man. I tell you what, I miss Owen Hart. I was just going to ask too. I mean, this is the first time we've talked about Owen. I know that will. I know you had a great relationship with him, but your. I mean, just your thoughts right here. Just seeing Owen on on TV, seeing you know. It's deja vu, bro. Deja vu because it, you know Owen. I knew the Hart family real well. Good friends with Stu and Martha, and, and you know all Brett's whole family. And then seeing Owen up there. Owen used to stop at my house in Minneapolis. Going to Calgary at the time, it was Northwest Airlines, and it had one flight a day, and it went through Minneapolis. And he and I were on a lot of flights together, he and I and Hawk. And uh, to see that, and uh, for him not to be here today, and for the reason why he's not here, is just freaking heartbreaking, man. And that's uh, that's the end of this uh, this show. I know we're I I, I know just from talking we with you that we are. We just fly by two hours. Uh, two hours and forty five minutes. Dang man! <clears throat> I told I think that this right here. I mean, I know we've done three and we've done one just on territory. We want, did one interview with Ellering last week, and this one just watch along a pay per view. I think this did fly by for two hours and forty five uh, minutes. This may have been our best one yet. Man. I, this is I, really good. This I you know what? And hopefully they all keep getting better from here. I think we are going to have at least one, maybe two interviews next week on the uh, on the show that okay. will uh, that will do. So we just uh, we want to tease that for uh, for you interviews know, Joe, next week. I, one thing I really like the fans to do, the fans that listen to these podcasts, write into the site. Mm-hmm. Write in and tell us what questions you got, what kind of matches you want us to go over, what you want to hear, what you want to talk about, what stories you want. Because like I said before, man, this is no-nonsense BS, and we're going to tell you like it is. We're going to give you honest opinion. And uh, you gotta, people got to remember, too, a lot of my opinions about this match and about Dave Meltzer – were thoughts and opinions of 20 years ago. Right. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean this is what I, how I feel today. Today's a different day and time, but I'm still going to tell you how I feel about it and what I think about the whole situation. So, And that's, uh, yeah, that's going to wrap it up for the pay-per-view. 20 years ago, almost to the date, December 7th. Uh, 1997. Today we're recording this on December 13th, 2017. So 20 years ago, this pay-per-view took place, and you basically, if you watched it along with us, you uh, you you just got to watch, sit and watch a pay-per-view that a WWE Hall of Famer was on, and hear the running commentary of that uh, that Hall of Famer. So we hope that you appreciate that. As we said, keep your thoughts coming along. Buy the shirts. We're uh, we are going to get the uh, the podcast shirts up on Pro Wrestling Tees along with all the shirts that you already have up there. <coughs> at yeah, the man, Pro Wrestling Tees website. Ro- ro- great Road Warrior Legion of Doom t-shirts, man. Go to ProWrestlingTees.com. I'm going to talk to them real soon about doing our Water Rush podcast shirt on there, you know. And as far as that and bookings, Joe, like we talked about before, yep. you know. You go, go to the, uh, yeah, at Water Rush pod, uh, pod on Twitter. You search the Water Rush podcast on Facebook. It says Water Rush podcast with Road Warrior Animal, yep. Joe Laurinaitis, the long name for the for that one. So go search that as well. And, of course, for right now, you can hear us on the STL Podcast Network, stlpodcast.com is where you can find all of these along with downloading them on your iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you uh, you find your podcast, we are there. So uh, another yeah. thing I look forward to, Joe, and fans got to remember, man, I look forward to come back in your area. So if you want to bring me in for a speaking engagement, testimony at church, or a or a personal appearance, you know, 
You got to go to thebookforwrestlers.com, ask Steve Stasiak to get bookings, or go to my, my Joseph Michael Laurinaitis Facebook page and private message me. I answer every, every request I get, and, uh, you know, we look forward to hearing back. Good feedback from the uh, – listen, we'll take feedback, good or bad, from the fans, man, because we want to improve this. We want to try to make this the number one podcast in the wrestling business and on podcasts in general. And, uh, you know, Joe, hey, man, it's always a pleasure, bro, getting together and working with you. It's been a great two hours, 40 minutes, whatever it's been. Yep, two hours and 50 minutes it's of always, wrestling it's talk. It's always great to rehash old crap that you see on TV. That's you know? two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, let us know what you think, and we will be back next week for another episode of Oh, What a Rush Podcast. See you next week.